Please note, for maximum picture quality, it may be necessary to adjust the tracking control on your VCR. Francois Truffaut, I think that's how you pronounce his name, was known as the grave digger of cinema for his harsh reviews. This notoriety led him to being uninvited to the 1958 Cannes Film Festival. Deciding to put his own Altair theory into practice, Truffaut went on to make a somewhat autobiographical film, The 400 Blows, a name which makes absolutely no sense in English. This remarkably went on to win the Best Director at Cannes in 1959, which announced the uh, arrival of the French New Wave. And I am announcing the arrival of Adjust Your Tracking, a podcast where we're on a venture to watch a century cinema decade by decade, year by year. I am one half of your hosts, Liam Delaney. And with me is my good friend and Godzilla in Fischiado, Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Jones. Hello. I will be soon. I got a, uh, I should, probably shouldn't say this, but I got a USB stick through the post of all 33 or whatever, how many Godzilla films there are. From, and is that, is that your plan for the next few weeks then? Well, we'll see. I, I, I think I promised about nearly a year ago to watch every single Bond film. Oh, yeah, week. you did. And yeah, I, how's that going, Ollie? Yeah, I've, I've watched approximately zero <laughs> so i'm not going to promise anything but no i'm i'm looking forward to watching some of them because like like i said it to the first one the first godzilla takes itself really seriously and it really just seriously to, like, yeah it seems to really devolve into just really, lunacy yeah lunacy so i'm interested to see how how quickly it nosedives the main my main takeaway from godzilla watching it was like this is super po-faced and super serious and i didn't expect it <laughs> At all, I could never have told you that's what the first Godzilla was. I, I, like, to the level that it is, it's a proper, yeah. proper like film. Also, I feel like I need to apologise to um, Blue Oyster Cult for butchering. I didn't know that was Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, I think we've actually that's two Blue Oyster Cult references in like two episodes because we did. Uh, I'm sure, we did a bit of Don't Fear the Reaper as well. Oh yeah, God, that's really weird. No one talks about Blue Oyster Cult apart from us. <laughs> Hey, Dad Rock. Actually, it's not Dad Rock anymore. I was listening to uh, System of Down the other day, and Caroline was like, what's this Dad Rock you're listening to? And I was like, Dad Rock. And I was like, yeah, it probably is Dad Rock now. It is. I think the, the recent Now, uh, Now That's What They Call Dad Rock, came out <laughs> like this weekend. And it has like MGMT and Bastille and like colours <laughs> on it. So <laughs> that's now Dad Rock. <laughs> if you want to feel really old, Ali. <laughs> Anyway, we're chatting away, and we've got a guest this week, which I should have introduced, and they're being very polite <laughs> whilst we're talking. <laughs> but uh, with us is uh, uh, Lorcan Mullen. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes uh, hi, Lorcan. Uh, Lorcan Hello. is a podcaster, film critic, comedian. Did I nail that? Like, well, <laughs> I, I, I can claim all those things. They're not in the they're not in the pay slips, though. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about that part uh, of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, amateur opinion haver is maybe the Ooh. best way of describing me. I yeah. like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you, guys. No, it's really exciting. It's really cool. I was going to say, tell us about uh, the podcast you've got then. Well, I've got, um, I've got, I do two at the moment, and I've got a third one um, halfway Ooh. between production and, and release. Uh, the first one that, that's film related is called Best of Worst of British, where myself and two other p- opinion havers. Uh, Tom Hodkinson <laughs> and Michael Bell watch and discuss a British film that has a reputation for being utterly awful and okay, see if okay. that reputation is fully deserved and 
almost every time it is completely deserved. If anything, really? sometimes people undersell how bad some of these films have been. <laughs> You, you should do an episode with Liam covering that uh, Cliff Richard film set in Birmingham where he we've, makes burgers. We've literally oh, just it. recorded it. We literally just <laughs> yeah, yeah. recorded it. This week we recorded bring it take, up, yeah. take Me High. And I'll take say, high, actually, yeah. as far as the films we've covered goes, that is one of the better ones. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it actually has a modicum of charm to it. And as Brummies, it's... It, it does mean something different to us than it would to yeah, anyone sure. from outside of Birmingham because you see in like 1973 Birmingham, Birmingham yeah it's delightful yeah it, it does remind you what the city centre because I live in the city centre and what it looks like now compared to what it looks like there there's things you can recognise and things that aren't there yeah. and I'm always reminded of the like now they're trying to pedestrianise it all but back then you see just all the roads like literally <laughs> there's cars going down New Street and, and all the other areas that are now like pedestrianised but someone once described Birmingham city centre they designed it really well so that people could drive through it as quickly as possible. They didn't give, they didn't give anyone any reason to want to stay. <laughs> but you see, like, you see, like the central library, and it's only a couple of years after it was built, and it's crazy that I've got like plenty of relatives in my family that have outlived a building from its construction <laughs> to its destruction. It was <laughs> almost like they put it up, and immediately the world went, "What have you done?" Like, well, and famously, there was an immediate yeah. campaign to tear it down. Famously, Prince Charles said it looked like a place you would incinerate books, not keep it, books. It, yeah, it, looked, <laughs> it was horrible. It I was think disgusting. it was internally. It's actually quite a fascinating design when you remember. Yeah, it, and, like you can see everything. But that's the thing with pretty much all um, industrialist, uh, not industrialist. What are they called? Um, brutalist, brutalist, yeah. brutalist buildings. They're all really fascinating to look at on the inside, but on the outside, yeah. they're hideous. Like the National uh, Theatre and, and Warwick Arts Centre, all of them, you know? Between it getting closed and getting knocked uh, knocked down, they filmed a, a spy thriller in there with uh, Brian Cox and one of the guys from Cemetery Junction that I keep meaning to watch. And they do it really did do a good job of making it look so moody and, and atmospheric because there was barely anyone in this big cavernous halls. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a lot of fond... Like, that's the thing. Like, I, the conclusion we came to with it as far as Birmingham goes is that we're the only major city that are willing to admit areas where we're kind of naff. Whereas every other city will say that they're great and not accept the naffness, whereas with Brummies, we'll mm. kind of go, yeah, you got a point, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the weird thing I got with Take Me High was how they were shooting stuff that I think's naff in a kind of romantic way. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I like, and I was just like, it's very weird to picture, like, Spaghetti yeah. Junction in this kind yeah. of, like, location-based shooting. I, I actually walked... I walked to Spaghetti Junction just uh, like along the canal path from where I live. Like I did one of my days of exercise. Yeah, and I think the Spaghetti Junction is fascinating. What I really would love to have, because what is it? Three motorways and two A roads coming together, or, or uh, something I, around those something, sort of numbers. Yeah, something. But it like is that. amazing to see above you when you look at it from underneath. And I've always thought they should do a Fast and the Furious chase scene on it, and have them be driving on different motorways and like jumping off of one <laughs> carriageway and landing on another Absolutely. one. And so what are like some highlights though on the podcast you were covering then or what is kind of well, are, there, are there any gems or are they all just <laughs> oh well i mean I, the one that i always recommend that people listen to is the first episode is the one we did for on the buses the film okay. version of the tv sitcom because it is amazing what what we're witnessing like the whole plot is that the, the 
the they need to get more drivers in so they start hiring women bus drivers Ooh. and that is just the most <laughs> horrifying news to our heroes <laughs> and, that is the thing that, and so the whole running gag throughout the whole episode is every time someone mentions women drivers we all just went women drivers <laughs> <laughs> but it's and blakey in blakey's sort of the villain of the piece with the you know, his Hitler moustache and everything. He is like this woke social justice warrior doing the right thing. Right, <laughs> and right, he's portrayed right. as this horrible, awful person. <laughs> and the heroes are like, uh, the disgusting men in their 50s, that every woman yeah. is incredibly aroused at the mere sight of their leering faces. Yeah. So all women are either... In their early 20s with mini skirts, sure. or they're fat, frumpy ladies who literally, when they appear on screen, the score goes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's like you, you see all of Brexit, why it's happened <laughs> in this one moment before we're even in the EU in the, in the beginning. Like, this Wait. is the world that they believe we've lost. Yeah, I was going to say, because to me, that feels like not just like. 40 years ago or however long ago it was yeah like but it feels like generations 100 years ago like that, that yeah. would be acceptable but these people it was just you know when they were in their 30s or whatever it was just when they were like it's that's, just what yeah. life was or something but, you know that's the, that's exactly the thing when everyone ever complains about anything not being good it's just like no it's just that your knees aren't as good as they were it's not the world that's got worse <laughs> It's your bone density. That's really pain all the time now. Yeah, (laughs) that's the difference. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we tried to hit all the different types. We tried to go highbrow, lowbrow. You know, fat slags is an atrocious. Is that the Viz one? Yeah, it's the Viz one. That's Ollie said. Yeah, the Viz. It's based on the Viz characters, but no one involved in Viz was um, allowed to be a part of the creative process. And it's just it's just absolutely <laughs> atrocious. But but we'll also watch. But then we try and discover these rare like low budget films. Sure. One of the ones that we've done, we've done two of the three because they filmed two films back to back on a budget that seems like it could barely cover. You know, like the catering of one day of a regular <laughs> film. And it's called Knights of the Damned, and then the sequel is called The Dragon Kingdom. Okay. And. They, they, like I said, they've literally been clearly filmed them back to back, and their big selling point in the DVD cover is more dragons than the hobbits. And there's one <laughs> dragon in the hobbits. <laughs> That's your big selling. But we also, what we like to try and do as well is, is at least make it like give things a, a things in relative terms. And like, whilst it is an awful film, and they they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, we did also, it's kind of become like the dragging, the, the Knights of the Damned factor that we ask each other and we ask other guests, like, they shouldn't have made this film, really. It's not a film. It's not right. really a film. No one involved in it really has the talents to do it. But is it better to have not, to have at least made something, even if it's something demonstrably of no value? Or is it better to have at least the self-awareness to not even bother in the first bother. place and not waste anyone's time and that was that's oh, kind that's of where we question. tried to that's yeah that's kind of the question within it like um like because I, I, for the most part in my life i try not to see films that people say are bad until i started this project and and seeing bad films as someone who would like to be creative himself it's sort of it's it's just as important and valid to yeah. to learning as it is to see 
And like like one of the worst ones we've covered. Well, some like some of them are well made. The one that really I, I hate maybe the most out of all of them, other than the Michael Winner film um, Bullseye, which is legitimately up there as the worst film I've ever seen. It's between that and Date Movie. Oh, I um, haven't seen that Michael. I've only think I've seen two <laughs> Michael Winner films. Like he's yeah. He's a disgusting human being. Yeah. The only thing I know film. of Michael Winner is the insurance claim yeah, advert yeah. with the stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the um, but there's another there's another film that we cover called Cashback, which is very oh, artsy. I know Cashback. It was like, a like short it. film, wasn't it? And yeah, they, it was. Yeah, yeah, I have seen yeah. that, and they, it's slightly. If I remember right, I slightly thought that it kind of didn't beat the kind of it was a short film. Yeah, well, the short, it, yeah, but, the short um, film's kind of slotted in the middle of it, and then they yeah. just film stuff on either side. Well, you can tell how talented the director is, but yeah. you can also tell that he's made this film as an excuse to get glamour models to have their clothes taken <laughs> yes. off and get stared at for ages. Because it's like the, the guy has this power to freeze time, and so he uses it to disrobe all the women that come shopping in this like 24-hour supermarket, who just all happen to... It always looks like the Swedish volleyball team has turned yeah. up to go shopping yeah, at 3 a.m. Right. somehow. And so that was the thing. Like with, with The next one we've got coming up is uh, actually a really critically acclaimed film. Like, that's the first time we're doing one that's got, like, a really positive score on Metacritic. But one of our co-hosts, Tom, has watched it and thinks it's one of the most pretentious, awful things he's ever seen. So that might be a new... It's called <laughs> The Mother. Category. Yeah, it's called The Mother. And oh, it's uh, it was a film Daniel Craig did before he got Bond. So okay. it might be one... This might be one that causes more tension between us. Um, I've never but yeah, heard it's, of either. It's a lot of fun. We go down a lot of detours along the way. And we always make sure to not... To make it ourselves that are the butter. That, like, at the end of every episode, we'll say we've just made fun of a bunch of people that actually went out and made a film. Yeah. And whilst we just sat here and talked about it, and this week, and then we'll say something embarrassing that's happened to us recently to point out <laughs> we're very aware. <laughs> you know. I've got two recommendations for you for your podcast, though. So you should uh, you should check out the tormented. Was it? Mm. Yeah. Which was actually shot in your school. It was shot in. Vista, yeah, right? I like that film. I yeah. quite like that film. <laughs> um, it was also shot at Streetly School, where I used to go for swimming lessons. Yeah, I worked <laughs> um, on it. <laughs> oh, okay. And it's, uh, got another, pal- another... it's got a comic book in it, has it? It's got one of our comic books in it. Yeah, it's got it's our a comic book in it, and I helped yeah. source the location for Nostalgia and Comics. Oh, no, that was for uh, Faint Heart, another film I worked on. Oh, okay. Faint Heart. Are, are, nice. the, yeah. are the stories of Alex Pettifer valid? What um, are the stories about Alex Pettifer? He's a bit of a tosser. Well, no, actually, I'll tell you one story. We were in the canteen for uh, VZ, and I had to, as part, because I was like, I wasn't a runner, I was in the art department, but when I was on set, I was kind of just helping out, just doing all kinds of stuff. And so it was a dinner, like a a dinner, like lunchtime scene. I had to hand out everybody's lunches. And Mm. they literally put six in my arms, because we had to do it really fast. I literally gobbed it, and just food went everywhere. Oh, no. and Alex Pettifer, of all the people, helped me clear oh, up. Okay. So. Well, maybe the legend isn't true. Uh, yeah, that was that. So I do best of words, British. I'm, I'm working on a new podcast, which you both uh, kindly agreed to be guests on, called Twenty First, called Twenty First Films, where the concept is that I, me and myself and a different guest or guests each episode talk about a film that was released twenty one years ago. Not twenty one years ago to the date of the release, but just for twenty twenty one, it will be films from the year two thousand for twenty twenty two, two thousand and one. Yeah. yeah, for as long as I can keep the concept going, um, because I think it's about you know it, it fits for me because two thousand was basically the year I turned sixteen, 
and so I was starting to get more into things. It was, I was getting a bit more freedom. It was the year 2000. I could like no longer have to worry about relying on going to the Sutton Coalfield Odeon or the sure. Erdington Showcase if my mom would drive me there and pay for it. I could. Sure. I had a. I had like a UGC card before it was Cineworld. It was UGC, and I'd start to get to go and see these films, like not just the big blockbusters, but starting to see indie films and foreign films. Um, so 2000 was sort of the year that I started to change. So now these are all films that I was like aware of culturally at the time. Some of them mm. I've seen, some of them I didn't see at the time. And then it's just, so it's also about how our own opinions change and our feelings change. And it's not just about, oh, this is problematic now, although that is a factor in it. Sure. But it is also about, you know, like like Castaway so far of all the films I've watched, that's the one that's really resonated to me far more this year. Uh, than it would have back in 2000. Um, yeah, I watched Castaway literally this year and mm. I was not high on it when it came out. Originally. Yeah, me too. I, I was I was quite down on it and thought it didn't yeah. do anything. And I watched it this year and I was like, that's a goddamn masterpiece. Like, it is. That, like, it, that's it, yeah. so good. And I don't understand what I was thinking when I first saw it at all. I think it was a case, like, obviously being isolated and all that means more to us now but I, I was it was also when I'm 16 and I'm like everything sucks except the things <laughs> yeah. I know about and it was like oh this is product placement bullshit this is an extended adver- advertisement for FedEx and all that and you know I just I'm I mean, I'm not saying I'm not a tosser now. I'm just a, diff- a tosser in a different kind of way. <laughs> and I think you have that thing. Like, I, I was very susceptible to it when I was a teenager. Like, if someone, re- if something like the general mass really likes something, I was quite mm. quick to not want to like that. Even, well, this like, is, and it was hard to admit you liked stuff that that, that yeah. was so popular. And I this remember, like, my... Titanic's another one for that. Like, and yeah, actually, yeah, Titanic's just a wonderful film. I don't know why I ever tried to fight the idea I remember... that that film's bad. Well, that's funny because, again, like, obviously, a lot of these will be films I'll be looking forward to watching again for the first time in 21 years. Like, I hadn't seen Castaway in 21 years. Yeah. Like, more than half my life ago. Uh, Titanic, I haven't seen since I saw it at the cinema in 1997. Like, I've seen right. clips and stuff about it, but I haven't sat, you know, you've got to put a bit of a commitment to watch it. I think if it yeah. gets re-released for, like, its 25th anniversary or something at the cinemas, I'll probably try and go and see it then. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I was just... I remember thinking it was all right. I don't know one way or the other. I didn't hate it as much. It's like it's also an interesting. I looked at like the top one hundred box office films of all time, and the only one I haven't ones I haven't seen are the Twilight films, which is weird. So okay. I like yeah. again. You just try, but again, I was probably at that age, mid twenties, going ah oh, no, it's just for girls. And the worst <laughs> thing you can like is something that a teenage girls liked, despite the fact that you know the Beatles and yeah, <laughs> the, and um, the great things. I was gonna the kind of the hatred that yeah. things get that that are like targeted at that audience is insanity yeah. in our culture. Oh, and the Twilight is the um is the epitome for that because those yeah. films are nowhere near the the way people talked about them at all. Well, I actually quite like the first and third I, ones. I think they're quite yeah, good. I do. I like the second the one's a bit time, boring but... and the, the last two are yeah. a bit bonkers. But, um... <laughs> but they're bonkers in a good way. They're not bonkers in a bad they're way. Just they're just silly like, fun, like, do you yeah. know what I mean? It is interesting um, how there was just like that four-year stretch of so many YA novels being adapted. Yes. Yeah, and like, now yeah. there's just none of them. It's kind of like how there was this run in the mid '70s of bleak dystopian sci-fi films, and it, then you know. So I wonder if like twenty, twenty-five years down the line, the kids that grew up on those films that are now young filmmakers themselves, if they'll want to try and resurrect that genre sure. again, no, it's like, you know, yeah, they'll, they'll make. We need they'll to go back to the maze. Back. We need to go yeah, maze hunting yeah. again. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, you'll get you'll get the Maze Runner and the cast from the Maze Runner. Two or three of them will come back as the wizened, older <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> versions of themselves. 
because we can't I mean, leave that... anything alone anymore. <laughs> and it's weird, like, this is the stuff we're going to be nostalgic for, really, now at this point. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what, that 2000s, I mean, like, The Emperor's New Groove was just yeah. rubbish that year, but now that film is absolutely, like, people adore that film, I'm among them, like, um, mm-hmm. and I, that, I remember loving Kronk, I thought Kronk was a was a genius comedy character yeah. at the time, but the rest of the film sort of didn't mean anything to me. And, okay, um, yeah, you're right, that stuff all kind of swings around again, really, mm, it mm. does. So yeah, it'll be a lot of fun doing that over time and, and seeing these films. Like 2000 as well seems to be a year that a lot of... Like 99, 2000 were where a lot of the, the big movie stars and directors had that breakout role uh, or that breakout film. So you've obviously got guys like David Fincher and Wes Anderson, Sophia Coppola. Sophia Coppola, uh, Nolan, Paul, Paul Thomas it? Anderson, yeah, Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan with um, follow, Following and then Memento. That'll be one of the ones for 2000. Yeah. Um, but also you were getting, in 2000, you've got like Jack Black arriving with High Fidelity. You've got Vin Diesel arriving with Pitch Black. Sure. Uh, you've got Michelle Rodriguez showing up in Girl Fight. You've got... Um, uh, yeah, just like loads of people that become big stars for the rest of the the decade. Tom Green in Road Trip. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I was wondering about that. Like around ninety nine, two thousand, were where so many of the like pop stars of today were being were just sort of hitting it. Like Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Eminem, you know, the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC with Justin Timberlake. Um, it seems like it was a period where a lot of new stuff, like the, maybe because it was the new millennium, people were keen for the new to come in. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah, nonsense. Yeah, I think but. like we obviously separate this podcast by decades, but like I'm not really any believer that decades make that kind of. They're not strong kind of cultural markers or anything like mm. that. But saying that, 2000 was such a strong cultural marker that I think, as you're saying, it did make a separation. There was forced a separation in the kind of way because people were so was obsessed sen- yeah. that there was this sense of like a new millennium, and that was yeah. really important to what people were writing really. There was that sense of we're in the future. We're literally yes. in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we're here now. Look, look at it. It's two thousand. Like. Really worried when we get into the two thousands to do those films because I, when I look back and think in my head, every film feels metallic and kind of right fake. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like because it was yeah. when digital filmmaking yeah. came in and stuff like that, and everything just feels a bit. Well, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, like <laughs> you got the CGI in in pitch black as yeah. Lots of Ben Affleck films. I don't know. Well, yeah. like I don't dislike Ben Affleck, but a lot of his early films. Oof. I was going to say the problem we have with looking at the two thousands as well is that because we've seen so much, that was like yeah. massively our period, like where we were going mm. to cinema all the time. That I think most of the stuff we'll end up covering are quite smaller films because we're trying to see stuff mm. we haven't seen. So there'll be stuff yeah. that might have later now people are kind of looking back to, or earlier films that filmmakers now are really starting to hit were making them but just didn't get the press. So I think that our two thousand series might be kind of weird actually. Yeah, it might be kind of yeah. interesting. And again, I really want to do Final Fantasy Spirits within. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's yeah. such a weird architect. I saw sorry, weird artifact, like stuck in time that they made this yeah. fully CGI film based on Final Fantasy. And yeah. They'll never do anything like that again. So they created a female character for that that they thought, well, we can use this for other films. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. She will be in other films. Yeah, that was the whole thing. 
about it. Yeah, I'd ne- I, I'm not a gamer, so I'd never played the game, so it meant nothing to me. Sure. I don't think um, the film means anything to the games, to be honest. The, well, that's why I was always told that it was always a new story. It was like a brand name, but like it was almost like an anthology yeah. series, but like the characters and the settings and the, almost the genre were always different. That was what I was told. Yeah, basically. and there's always, there's basically there's always like some synergy. There's always kind of like this idea with magic and tech. There's always mm. this idea with kind of like like the old world new world kind of elements to it and you see them in most of the final fantasy games but really yeah it's just continuously resetting that's the whole point of it so it was it's weird it just shows that how massive final fantasy 7 and 8 were that that hollywood thought they'll do this I right, um i guess we're talking about films so ollie have you got caught up with anything this week um i haven't really because i've started a new music video so i haven't really watched a great deal i've watched the entire series of the pottery throwdown i could tell you all about that if you want <laughs> but no I uh, I watched Hereditary last night. Oh, I love Hereditary. And I, aside from the end, like it, I had to do a little bit of reading into it, and like afterwards, it's definitely a film that gets you thinking. Sure. And it's and like what's his name, Ari Aster. Yeah, 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 honest, yeah, yeah. He definitely makes like, obviously he makes horror films, but they're different kind of horror films. And like I just, I thought it was fantastic. Just the ending for me, like I get I get what he was doing and where he was going with it, but it. It came off a little bit uh, without. I don't want to spoil anything. I know it's like a, a couple of years old now, but like, um, do you know what I mean? It's kind of it, you can take it as quite a cheesy, not cheesy ending, but it kind of. I, I don't know, know what you mean. Yeah, but I like it. I still like it. It's not. Like I don't like it, but it's just one of those things you've kind of got to go with it. You kind of. You kind I of feel he. To... Um, I feel he got. I feel Midsummer's better. Definitely, yes. it's de- like, they're both very but... similar films. It's about. A person being groomed to become something. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's about the, that kind of horror of expectation, which I think is such a, a millennial kind of thing that we have in our brains. That like like this expectation of who you're going to be and what you're going to be, but the kind of scary world around you, kind of holding you back or kind of judging you and that kind of thing. I think he's managed to tap into that in this spiritual, like not not so supernatural way. Yeah, I think Midsummer though is the better version of that. But there is yeah. some great stuff in this, like the whole kind of like the use of the models, and it's about people yeah. looking in on other people, and you look, you know, it's kind of all that kind of connection and stuff. And then even the shots where they're like zooming into the models, and then it kind of, you know, without an edit, it kind of blends into the actual film. To the things scene like as that. Well, yeah, I, I think really Tony seamless. Collette is amazing in it. As she's well. just fantastic like, in anything she's well, in. True. There, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, true. And. Uh, like I was, so I forgot. Like I was thinking, I know who the dad is. Who is the dad? And then I was like, it's fucking Gabriel. Burns. Gabriel Burns, yeah. He <laughs> um, doesn't work enough, really. Actually, Gabriel Burns. No, I think he's really. I really like him. Yeah, um, I do too. But yeah, the, like there's a shot like, like later on in the film where Tony Collette's like, she's like on the wall, but you kind of don't notice yeah, her at yeah, first, yeah, and it's just yeah. so eerie and disturbing. I think it's interesting how like because I've been talking to like what the future of cinema is. And I think it almost seems like the only two things that are like... The only two really successful producers out there that just seem to know how to make hits now are Kevin Feige and uh, Jason Blum. And they're down two different ends of the of the spectrum, really. But I think... I, I, I was saying I'm not convinced that when lockdown ends and everything that we're all going to go racing back to the cinemas. I think no. there's a lot of places that will have a boom 
like pubs and clubs and restaurants um and uh, and and actually i think theater and comedy will do well because there's that interactive element yes but i I don't think after a year of lockdown where everyone wants to go is a darkened room where you have to shut up and watch a big screen for two (laughs) two and a half hours so i'm not convinced there'll be a cinema boom immediately whenever the next marvel film or uh, fast and the furious comes out that'll probably start to draw people back well to be fair the first marvel film's out in may isn't it yeah yeah so it's not long um but i think uh, Black Widow. Black Widow, okay, yeah, sure. I do think it seems like the only things that are like close to getting a guaranteed audience now are superhero films and horror films. Different levels of success, box office-wise, but there is a certain guarantee and there's a desire for the general public to see the big superhero movies on the big screen and also yeah. to have that shared experience of getting scared out your wits at a horror film. And A24 and Blumhouse have made a great career out of giving directors, you know, Almost like that old Roger Corman edict. You have this budget, you can make what you like, we'll make a great trailer for it and we'll make our money back. And so now, like, a lot of the, you know, critics are having to really, like, (laughs) enjoy horror films, which is not something they like to do, really. So they start calling them elevated horror. Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes. But it's something that I've, like, yeah, like, for myself, like, the two ideas I have for, like, projects, like, that could work as films... I'm looking at like horror ideas and I'm not someone that leans into horror necessarily, but I do like that concept, like taking a metaphor and and being able to just, if you can make the metaphor scary, then you can say something about it. (laughs) Like there's people that are about horror. You just have to find that, that one thing that hasn't been done before and exploit it. Yeah. Yeah. Like they've always said that any first filmmaker's film should be a horror because it's like, it's, it's an instant audience. Like people love horror no matter if it's bad or good, they'll watch it. And it all like it's you know, a great calling like, card. Like these Blumhouse films, they cost between one and ten million pounds or dollars or mm. whatever. But they it, they like quadruple, triple. You know, they you know they end up like in hundreds of millions of dollars on these fractional mm. budgets. So they they you know in terms of profit, they make more profit than these superhero films do, and they cost a lot mm. less to promote as well. So mm. you know that's where they make so many of them. There are people that just would watch every, like the Criterion Collection or Arrow Video yeah. are now in the Blu-ray markets. That's sort of what A24 are in the cinema market. And they are like, I mean, I'm looking forward to the Green Knight so much. Like, yeah, and, yeah. And they know how to market their films. They know the audiences yeah. are going to pick them up. And uh, whoever does their trailers is yeah. very, very talented. Did they do Lighthouse as well? Yeah, they did. They yeah. might have done. Yeah, yeah I thought even so. if they didn't, you'd assume it was them that did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you give them the credit even if they don't deserve it. Which I actually haven't watched the later. So I need to watch that. It's yeah, I have. It's really good. It's actually that's another thing. Sorry to go back to twenty first films, but one of the one of the things I really want to do is talk about Leonardo DiCaprio. I want the first episode <laughs> if I can get someone to record it be about the beach because he's basically the last movie star that we've got now that really just does movies. He's never signed up to a streaming series or anything. He's the only one that still seems to have a little bit of leeway. And I think 2000, the beach was like that pivotal moment where he was sort of going down the, like a, like Danny Boyle was the hip name at that point, but he sure. wasn't a success, a guarantee. And after that, he just went to like, and the beach was sort of a sight hit. That'll be one that'll be really interesting to watch again for the first time in 21 years. But since then, it's always been Scorsese, Spielberg, um, Tarantino. He, he definitely uh, chased in, in the Oscar Ritu. for a while. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, wasn't when we when we did our list, Liam? Wasn't he like number one in terms? of... I can't remember what our list was about now, but it was our, our hungover <laughs> list where we were bored and we were just we were oh, going through actors and their filmographies, yeah. and we were seeing if it, they had generally great movies, bad movies, or what's the other one like? 
I think mediocre. I think the one we had to have a category of haven't seen it, which haven't seen, and then it was like yeah. you know uh, guilty pleasure, remember, guilty pleasure or something. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. what the category was. <laughs> and Dicap- start- DiCaprio like won out. Yeah, that started because we were talking about um, Eddie Murphy and Robin Williams and we wanted to see who had better films. <laughs> and it escalated. And then Liam created this whole huge chart and like bar chart thing of who was the most successful. One of my one of my dream podcast ideas actually would be to do one where I talk, go through, because you're always getting the director's filmography. People like to do that and that makes sense. Yeah. But I would love to do a podcast where we go through just an actor's filmography because sure. you're going to get way more films to cover through a much wider range of genres and less of a guarantee of quality and you can chart their career and like someone like eddie murphy would be interesting to see i dare you to do steven seagal well yeah there are obvious candidates there are obvious candidates eddie murphy would be a good one leonardo dicario would be a good one um nick cage would be a really fascinating one to do. Uh, i would do that in a heartbeat he's my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just a lot it just would take so much time that's the other thing you'd have to like not make it, would, it a movie per episode. You'd have to like take maybe like two year. Well, clusters. exactly because if you do that, it'd be a Nick Cage podcast. Like, it would, yeah, yeah, you'd be um, doing Nick Cage. Yeah, for, and like, you know what you call years. it? Cage Match. That's the name of the podcast. <laughs> well, my idea was it. My idea would be to call it an actor's life, and then you can do the Pinocchio theme as the theme tune to it. But yeah, I, I, it's something I would love to do as someone who was like was an actor when at the start until I. Saw myself in a kids' TV show and realised I couldn't even overact convincingly. So uh, <laughs> I better step behind the camera for the most part. After that, um, but the I guy grew up with actors. Brum, yeah, I was in Brum, yeah. Yeah, what was it Brum? I thought it was Woof. I was in the uh, Cake Gang. Cake Gang. No, that was Jack Allen. Jack Allen was in Woof, um, ah, okay. but we both went to the same drama group. Well, actually, Jack told me about that drama group. And so I started going to audition for it. But, like, two two big movie stars were in the same group as us. Felicity Jones. Felicity Jones. Uh, Academy say, Award yeah. nominated. And Gwillem Lee, who was uh, Brian May in the new uh, Bohemian oh, Rhapsody yeah. film. He's in The Great, the TV oh, show. Yeah, yeah. I'm convinced he's going to get to audition for James Bond. I don't know if he'll get it, but I'm convinced he'll get to audition for it. Yeah. The, the last thing that I got really close to getting as an actor was I nearly got a role in The Archers, like a regular role in The Archers. Oh, really? And that was what Felic- yeah, and that's what Felicity was doing. We would have been in a love triangle, only on the radio, though. But <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to try and make it convincing. If we just go by voices, maybe people could believe it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but she was always, yeah, she was always lovely. Um, I feel like and The so Archers would be such, such fun to record. It would have been know, amazing. Like- it would have been a great way to, to to just have a side hustle, you know. Yeah, I can't totally. imagine it pays you a lot, but no, it's no, not a no. lot of work for probably a decent hourly rate. I can't um, even imagine anyone listens to it. I, like, I'm so fascinated that it exists. Yeah. It's got a huge following. Like, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. But I've never listened to it. I, the only time I listened to it was when they sent me a cassette of the character, like the family that I would have been a part of if I yeah. had got the role. So I had to study their accents. This is how long ago it was I had to go to Pebble Mill Studios for the audition. <laughs> oh my god. I've only ever caught the archers like if I've got in my car and Radio 4's on and it's a weird time and there's and it's some reason it's playing. That's the only time I've ever heard it. And it's like, oh, is this what the archers is? This is what it sounds like. All I know from the archers mm. is it's got people just constantly going, ah. <laughs> they just sigh. You've got to do time. a lot of breathing acting. Yeah, you've got to do a lot of breath acting. <laughs> <laughs> So, Liam, have you watched anything this week? I've watched loads, because the Oscar nominations came out, so I'm going to start catching up. Um, uh-huh. and so, But I'll talk about two of them. I've already said that I started watching Zack Snyder's um, super fun 
time. Super friends. <laughs> Super friends. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm only an hour into it, which is two parts. So I'm not, not mu- I've got not got much to say right now, but um, we'll probably talk about that in coming weeks or something. But uh, but yeah, I watched um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, oh, okay. Because uh, Chadwick Boseman and it's and um, Olivia's up for the best actors, aren't they? Yeah, Viola. Sorry, not Olivia. Oh, nice. God. Um, and um, that is absolutely worth watching. Absolutely, massively worth watching. It's very mm. theatrical. It is like very mm. like present presentation of the play is. Um, and but the performances are wonderful, and Chadwick Boseman absolutely is going to win Best Actor because he's wonderful in this film. And you've got the whole so it's, other it's not stuff with it. So. So it's not a situation where it's our last chance to honour him. We really should. It, like it is, an, uh, if he was still alive, do you think he would have been very much I, in the running still? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's it very much is that um, that case. It's the same as. Yeah. Um, oh, his, his name's gone out of my head, but the Heath same Ledger. situation. Heath Ledger. Yeah, that he would yeah, have I won think, anyway, I think, but it's yeah, he, just well, a, a lock because of what's going on. Like I think. I think Heath Ledger would have deserved to have won. I'm not convinced he would have won. Yeah, if he yeah, was good still point. Alive yeah, at the time. Good point. But he would have should have won at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. you also got with Chadwick, you've also got kind of the five bloods this year, which I know Oscars mm. don't do the double noms, but like well, I mean like they don't put same films into the kind of a list well like critics choice do. Yeah. But I think because seems of the like, double thing, yeah. it makes sense. It seems like the biggest snub in the acting categories that I've heard is for Delroy Lindo. Absolutely, the Five Bloods. I haven't he, seen those, any of those yet, so I can't comment. But uh, he, uh, it, he, I can't stop thinking of his performance in the Five Bloods. It's such mm. a such an amazing performance, and I, I am baffled by the lack. It's this is Netflix mishandling their campaigns. They don't, you know, yeah. they focused really heavily on Marainis. They focused really heavily on their like um, Chicago Seven. And they've mm. for some reason just dropped the ball on on pushing um, to Five Bloods, and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. At least for directing and for and and um, Delroy definitely should have got it. I was really shocked when I found out that Delroy Lindo is actually British. He's British, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. is like, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sounds like he's got an American accent. I've never heard. Oh, him he with has, a but he is British though. He lived in the UK for like almost like I don't know, nearly twenty years or something until he moved. Yeah, yeah. He was um, born in London, and like he, he, oh. he says, he, you know, he's a British. He, well, I can't remember. It's funny Maybe when, yeah, when they, when someone drops or re- gets a new accent along the way, like uh, Martin from Fraser, keeping back to going back to Fraser. He was he oh, grew yeah. up in England, but oh, he, yeah, yeah. when he, he moved to America when he was like eighteen and just took the American accent on and never. And he never really it. heard him with the British accent. He, never he probably it. helped them with work as well back then, if they kind of kept yeah. that pretense of yeah. you know, that's mm. yeah, so. And um, I also watched Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which I really want to watch that. I really is wonderful. Want to watch that. The the double I, nom for best supporting for be- both the leads of this is insane because yeah. that means the film doesn't have a lead actor. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but like uh, they both deserve their acting nominations for this. Um, I'd even say Dominique Fishback um, should have got nominated as well. She's wonderful in it. Um, and I think, Jesse Plymouth is great as well, but it's it's yeah. a wonderful film. I think Daniel Kaluuya might be the the actor of his generation. Yeah, really. I think yeah. it's going to be between maybe him and Adam Driver. I think yes. might be another close contender, yeah. and probably and probably Lakeith Stanfield as as well. Actually, yeah, sure, uh, will probably be in that running. But Kaluuya has that like he, he has so that versatility much. already, yeah. and yeah, and he's so I, he would have been. Screen. He would have been my pick. His Get Out performance was my favourite of the nominees that year for yeah. Best Actor. 
Yeah. Um, no, wonderful. He, we, yeah, he just is so good at it. I really, it's Did, both really recommend those films. Really, really recommend them. Like, um, I really love both of them. And uh, Best Picture, the nominations this year are not bad. There are snubs, you know. There are things I don't. I, I wish that got up there. I wish First Cow was there because I, I mm. still my favorite film of last year. Um, and I don't think she she wasn't even recognised as director either. Um, but like, promising young woman getting a best act, best picture nomination is wonderful. Uh, I think mm. that's so cool. And uh, Judas and Black Messiah and Minari getting it as well. And Nomadland. There's such a good mix of really really great films this year of a diverse like diverse background as well. Which I'm guessing is a huge product of last year. They like brought in more kind of people from different backgrounds than any any before. They actually went out their way to bring them into the academy, and I think maybe we're seeing a little product of that of actually getting some yeah. different voices in the um, in the kind of system. For once. I'm super happy though. Sound of Metal's up there. Yeah, well. I haven't watched it yet, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, like um, yeah, like that's my pick. I mean, I haven't watched everything, but yeah, I want to see Sound of Metal as well. It's such a cool, interesting concept. Um, I was just going to say quickly that uh, I remember seeing a talk that Jordan Peele did to some film students, and one of the ones. Uh, put their hands up. He was a young black student, and he was saying, "Like we're having a great moment now from Get Out, but how do we make sure that this isn't like in the early '90s where you were getting yes. Menace to Society and Do the Right Thing, and and the Wyans Brothers were starting to get some more comedies and that made, and Wesley Snipes and Denzel and all them lot were getting were becoming stars. How do we make sure that this doesn't just isn't like a three or four or five year burst that it's just a constant going through every year? Yes, you know." Because it was like after twelve years a slave, it then went to Oscars so white because it was that sense of you've had your you've had your fun, yeah, and now yeah. come back when we you come back when you when you're fresh and new again. It was the same and, thing uh, that year that was it Denzel and I can't remember her name both won the acting acting category. Uh, Halle Berry, yeah, thank you, Halle Berry, was, yeah. yeah. And um, they were like, look, this is revolutionary, and then it just you know no actors, no like black actors got nominated again, like or something. But also, so, I think one of the things that's good as well with like Stephen Young getting nominated and Chloe Zhao is that so often it's always seen as like oh it's the the plus one is almost always the black actor or the black yes. actress and it's yes. like because it was always like oh can we have a can we have a black james bond can we have a black doctor who and i was like that's fine but can we also maybe have an asian james bond yeah or yeah, yeah, yeah. you know a, a, an east asian doctor who like i think the next james bond would be my pick it would be henry golding um, absolutely great choice or, yeah. or and my or the next I always thought like Sanjeev Bhaskar could have been a great Doctor Who. I always pushed for like Dev Patel or uh, to be like Doctor Who. I always thought he would yeah, be fantastic yeah. as a great like. But we spoke about Minari a couple of weeks ago, basically, in the fact that I was really annoyed at the way like the Golden Globes had it pigeoned as like this foreign film, and you watch it, and it's the most American film ever made. Mm. It's about America. It's about immigrants yeah, in yeah. America. Like, and I'm so happy the Oscars have have actually just accepted that and are nominating it the way it should be nominated and taking it properly at face value and not just judging it as like yeah. well, it's got some foreign language in it, so it's not American, which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Well, yeah. And it is, yeah, and like you say, that is what America is now. Because I always think um, one of my favorite, like some of my favorite films, always I like the films that sort of explore what it is to be a good person and the struggles of being a good person. Sure, that's like why It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite film ever. Sure, and like there's there's this continuation of great American leading men as like sort of stoic, heroic, decent people, like projecting decency, and that was what Jimmy Stewart was, that was Jack Lemmon was, yeah. and then it was Tom Hanks and and Kevin Costner. And the guys that I see that can do that role now are people like John Cho. I absolutely think John yes. Cho 
should yes. be getting the roles that Tom Hanks was getting, you know, yes. 10, 15 years ago. Because you see him in um, the film that was all done via Skype. And I was like, this is exactly the sort of role oh, that, I love that film. Yeah. you give to a Tom Hanks or a Kevin Costner 20 years ago. And those are the sort of things that he should be playing now. And that is what America is. That's, that's what Britain is now. Yeah. Like, whoever the next Bond actor is, it needs to be something different. You know, it needs yeah. to be... You know, and that's why Henry Golding. I think if you want to go down the Pierce Brosnan route, there is no more Pierce Brosnan esque, <laughs> suave, sophisticated, <laughs> handsome English man now than him or or that dude from Bridgerton. I guess those are the guys that would be the most logical ones to play the role. Not just let's give it to one to be to give them their token one. It's like that is the best person for that role yeah. going forward. Henry Golding would be so good. He would be so good. I was listening to a podcast um, the other day, and it like. You know me, I like my toys, and it was a toy podcast, and it was about um, uh, representation of black characters in toys. Okay. And like media back in the 80s and 90s. And um, it was quite interesting what they were saying, because the host of the podcast is white, so he brought in some um, people who work in the toy industry who are black. And um, basically, what they were saying was, they were saying, look, we don't really want a black Superman. We don't want a black Spider-Man. Mm. We want our own characters that are oh, on yeah. the same level. Do you know what I mean? That's what they were saying. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was quite interesting. I think that's true. The problem is that now nothing new is getting made anymore. Yeah. And I think there's certain characters... Like they, they're think... constantly going back to Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Bond. They're just not going to... You're not going to get a new character that will be like Bond now that will be able to last for 50 years and for it to be a black actor and just a series of black oh, actors. Oh, I agree with Asian that. But that was just that was their sense. Yeah. That's what they yeah, that's yeah. what they would really want. I mean, I mean that goes for yeah, any I know, media. I agree with that. There's nothing yeah. new can get through now because everyone's so like yeah. up in nostalgia or what they grew up as kids yeah. that they can't yeah. see beyond beyond that, do you know what I mean? And, yeah, I'm sure the black audiences were much more excited about Black Panther than they would be if they'd have cast Idris Elba as James Bond because it yeah. means a different thing. Mm. And ultimately, if you Idris Elba, but you're still doing Bond, which is a very imperial, you know, old school, almost colonialist character if you don't try and update him. And then when you try and update it, it feels wrong anyway, because Bond isn't meant to be updated. Um, yeah. Then it's just, well, is it just quasi quirting with a gun? Is that all we've got? I think well, Bond's a different character. Bond's a bit like mm. Doctor Who in the fact that you can you could you could do the route of it's just the code name and anyone could be Bond, mm. which I think is, yeah. that's perfect. I think that's um, my take on yeah. Bond, though. Like Bond like, is really weird in the modern world because he's a tool of the system, and also we treat Bond in our yeah. world as a representation of Britain. He's like Britain. That's what that means is Bond, and so mm. we need that character to represent Britain, and like and that's why it works to, yeah, to but- try and try and get like a mix of like people playing him and not just have the same yeah, thing yeah. Over, totally. and over again. That's what Britain right. is now. Yeah, because yeah. that's that that actually is representation. Because technically, Bond's like, yeah. If you, if you want to go... If you're going to insist on fidelity to the novels, well, then all the films have to have been set in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yes, and Bond exactly. should be Scottish. Yeah, exactly. And no, no yeah. Bond has done that. So if he's if he's now been born, this Bond will have been born in the 1980s or 1990s, well, there's a decent chance they're going to be of dual heritage, maybe. That they might be of the son of a, of, of a spy who was in Hong Kong in the 1980s. Yeah. So then you would cast Henry Golding as, it, yeah, as yeah, yeah. James Bond or, or another actor of British actor of East Asian heritage. What do you think would annoy the, like the, the, the frothing at the mouth brigade more, like the Lawrence Foxes, if they cast a white American as Bond or a black <laughs> Brit as Bond? Oh, what do you think God. would annoy them more? God, who can tell? <laughs> 
I can't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I'm it, it'd be the race. It'd be the race if, thing. If they cast a so. white American woman, if they cast a white yeah, American woman as Bond, that would, yeah, that would annoy them more. And uh, I also, before we move on to talk about this, <laughs> talk about the film, I want to mention one thing I've watched this week because I've been watched, binge watched, and I think this is this is key to what we're talking about. That's why I want to mention it. Uh, I binge watched the new Shiwa series on Netflix, and that is oh, okay. absolutely wonderful like in every single regards it's wonderful and like and it's such a mm. it's what the product of we're talking about giving it to um, noel Sil- stevenston who did great work on lumber jane's comic you know she's a lesbian and she brought that mix and diverseness mm. into the co- into the cartoon to a level that i've never ever ever in my life sat and watched something that feels like it's quite so like um, representative, representative of like people I know and myself and the world and stuff like that, and mm. I cannot believe that exists. Basically, I was watching it like just shocked, and I love the fact that this is a kid, a cartoon for kids. It never forgets to be a cartoon for kids as well, and it's so wonderful that people can watch this cartoon mm. as like you know a four year old or an eight year old and just see a mix and a diverseness that's treated without any kind of pomp and circumstance. It's just treated as absolutely normal. Yeah. And 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 I just absolutely recommend it. Like It's a shame it's not as big as I think it should be though, because like you know, like He Man started because it was a toy and then became yeah. a cartoon. And same with She Ra really. Like it this was not represented as a toy though. Like because I don't think it was on yeah. actual terrestrial TV, it was just on Netflix. Just on Netflix. It never I got can't, the toys yeah. and then the kind of the marketing push. So you don't so you don't see the young girls or boys wearing the costumes and that kind of play value from it. It's a shame that that it hasn't really resonated because it, it's it is really good and it could have. You're so right, Ollie. You're, have, I was I absolutely. I will hold my hand up. Last week, I was googling for Catra toys. I was like, I'm going to buy a Catra toy because it's Shira, and of course yeah, they're making toys, and you can't get them. It's insane, and I couldn't believe that at all because the whole point about this yeah. is toys, and it still has that. I think Noel see, see, I'll make you one. that into it. You know how <laughs> wonderful. I think she thought about them and making it, and did, and has done this really great just mix of it's a kids cartoon, but like it's going to be something that you won't hate when it's on and it's just so representative uh, and not in a way that feels mm. like it does it, it doesn't feel like a way that's forced it just feels so natural to the world and natural to these characters and i was i was just blown away by it i absolutely recommend it in every part not just like the representation of like lgbt or representation of women it's actually just because the nuance of the characters <coughs> and the way they treat both evil characters you know the baddies and the goodies and give them actual complex emotions and reasons for their emotions is something i haven't seen in a cartoon frankly and apart from maybe last airbender you know like just that kind of level of actual thinking mm-hmm. about these people as characters, and it's wonderful. I really loved it. Do you do you wish that it wasn't Shira? That it could have been an original concept that maybe could have drawn in? Because I always wonder with these things, it's always that sense of all oh, that you know the, the the people that had it made for them in the eighties and nineties, and they're saying you're taking it away from me. And like I said, it's like with Bond. It's like we're not taking it away from you. We're just not allowed to make any new stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. So we're just gonna have to take this old concept and, and reinvent it to reflect the modern times. Um, and also on that front, do you wonder if it even is has been kids watching it, or if it has just been people that grew up with She-Ra in the first wave, first wave, and, and wanting to watch it again, and and hence them making it more emotionally and 
complex and nuanced. I don't because know. That, actually. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't um, watch I it. I did so. try and do a bit of Google to find that out, and most of the reviews I was seeing from people who started pushing it, because it's one thing that started growing with kind of critics kind of pushing out there. Most of the early reviews I started seeing was people saying, "I put this on for my daughter," and I I ended up watching mm. it, kind of thing. So I, I was the one who finished watching it. <laughs> yeah, I was the one who finished watching it. Like, but I, so I don't know <laughs> really where that's coming from. Like, yeah. My push has been, I've continuously seen it, of people kind of just mentioning it now and again, almost like, not like in shush, but kind of just now and again at the back going, oh, this is so great, you should kind of watch this. But almost a little embarrassed because it is a kid's cartoon. Mm. So it's not like, it's, it's and yeah. it's a kid's cartoon in a way that like Shrek was, wasn't, you know, that kind of push in that kind of era of, it's a kid's mm. cartoon, but we put adult jokes in. It's not that, it's just a kid's cartoon that's done really well yeah. and you'll enjoy it. Like, so I don't think it's, ha- it hasn't had quite that kind yeah. of, quite obsession, I think, in the way that some cartoon series get. Yeah. And it was like, well, it was always when I found out about like the brony culture surrounding My Little Pony. Yeah. And I was like, is that, yeah, I'm always fascinated by those things. Like, is it, it's like, I'm not sure how many kids like Marvel. I don't know. Because every yeah, time I, I go know, to the I cinema know, yeah. to see a Marvel film, it's pretty much always been people around my age. I don't know if it's going to have that, mean that much to the kids. Like, some kids I'm aware of, like, some of my nieces and nephews or, or cousins' kids and that, some of them watch it, but some of them absolutely hate it, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, and same with Harry Potter. I'm not sure that anyone under the age of 25 gives much of a toss about Harry no. Potter anymore. I don't think so either. <laughs> I, no. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, are they all on the TikToks? Is that what they're actually on? <laughs> do, they, do we have no idea what they actually like? Are they like movies? Get, get over it. <laughs> I think the same when uh, Toy Story 4 came out and you had loads of people complaining that it wasn't a cartoon for kids anymore. I'm like, Toy Story isn't for kids. It's for the people who were kid when it came out. Yeah. It's not for anything else yeah. now. <laughs> or soul, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, soul. It's like, I don't know how many kids are really into jazz riffs. <laughs> I know. Right, anyway, so uh, this week we're actually right at the end of our 50s miniseries, which is quite exciting. Hey. Uh, we've finally made it through. It feels like we've been doing it for quite a while. And obviously we've got a few more episodes left. But yeah, we're dealing with 1959, and we're dealing with Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows. très bien qu'à l'école, on apprend des tas de choses inutiles. L'algèbre, la science, ça sert à peu de gens dans la vie. Mais le français, hein Le français, on a toujours des lettres à écrire. Tes parents disent que tu mens tout le temps. Non, je mens de temps en temps, quoi. Des fois, ils... je leur dirais des choses qui seraient la vérité, ils ne me croiraient pas, alors je préfère dire des mensonges. Si tu me demandes 1000 francs, c'est que tu en espères 500, donc tu as besoin de 300. Tiens, voilà 100 balles. Enfin, dans la mesure où on travaille tous les deux, vous savez ce que c'est. 
Oui, je suis père de famille, moi aussi. Faut reconnaître que parfois, on ne s'y retrouve pas très bien. Mais si seulement il avait voulu se confier à nous So, The 400 Blows is a film that came out in 1959, as I already said, and it's... it's How do we sum up this It's a coming-of-age film about a young kid growing up in Paris. That's it. That's what it is. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a little troublesome. A little bit naughty. little naughty. little troublesome. It's It's got a fascinating history, as I kind of tried alluded to at the beginning, and the fact that uh, Truffaut was this critic who um, was not liked in in circles in film circles because he was really harsh on french film he was constantly hammering at them about like you're not doing good enough films you're not like not tackling real subjects people like in france can't see themselves upon the screen was there was his big thing as well like and um it led to the point where you know can banned him he was the only critic who wasn't let into 1958 can uh because he was so disliked by the general crowd and because of that, and actually it was after he watched A Touch of Evil, which was quite good synergy for a previous film we covered, he uh, he kind of got pushed by his wife to make his own film. And he and he did. And and this was the product of it. And it's not only it's I mean, it'd be ridiculous for us to try and do a film podcast and not cover this film. Like and it's gonna be difficult to cover this film because it's a, like it's a huge movement that we won't even start to touch but this film launched really french new wave this film announced what french new wave would be throughout the 60s this um yeah i watched this when i was a student uh when i was um in aberystwyth uh, which is where i went to uni oh yeah um there was there was a va there was a video store on the pier and not only did they just do the standard stuff but they also had loads of really cool art house stuff which i'm guessing must have been to do with like the film student syllabus because like in Aberystwyth right. the students sort of have the run of the town we make up like half the population the last thing you need to give students is a sense of self-importance and superiority <laughs> but god that's what we had so I was really lucky I, I remember I went through like I, I rented all the Charlie Chaplin films and, and a I few know. other art house films and the 400 Blows was one of the ones that really stuck with me at that time um, but I haven't watched it since then but so many of the things I remember from it um I still remember to this day and, and uh, watching it, it so much of it still resonated. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, here's a quiz question for you. Actually, I wanted to ask. I like asking people who are film nerds. If you could only watch the films from one non-English language country and only watch <laughs> that country's films, which country would you pick? Oh uh, Christ! J- probably Japan for me. Yeah, Japan would be first, and France would be second for me. I might have France first. Mm. Then Japan, though I love Hong Kong film. That's yeah. like because mm. I love Wong Kar Wai so much. That, that yeah, like, yeah. and I guess can I put Ang Lee into Hong Kong? <laughs> Stop <laughs> cheating! No, <laughs> no, he's totally. I mean, if you if you want to get political, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I want to cause a fight, <laughs> but oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think. And I think Truffaut, as much as anyone, is is a reason for why cinema is so synonymous with France still yes. to this day. And the fact that we go auteur and that, yes. that is auteur theory. Well, I mean, don't forget though, like, like France is like cinema was birthed in France, pretty much, yeah. wasn't it? Really. Well, that was Truffaut's whole point 
his whole anger at like the French cinema, like sorry, film community, was the fact that Fr- that cinema was a French invention. You know, narrative cinema was a French invention, and like he was so angry at what it become. I think some of his criticism I wouldn't have totally agreed with, but he was um, obsessed with this push that we're not doing good enough films, and and really this push that the idea that a film can be controlled and like by the director and actually be a product of the director more than anything else and that mm. was obviously what led to author, author theory which we still talk about to this day like is, is it something you subscribe to i've again kind of like with christopher nolan actually i've gone up and down with it over time i absolutely uh, I'm, go up and down with I'm it less, yeah. yeah i'm less keen on it now more because i guess now we're aware of just monstrous behavior of people (laughs) of blokes in power and it seems like the author has been a great way for a lot of men to be terrible yeah (laughs) Yeah. and get away with awful behavior because they're artists (laughs) i think the truth of it watching this film and which you know if we talk about the invention of altair this is the invention of the altair it isn't you know but like at least Mm. the announcement of of a theory coming to practice and it's not true in this film like, because John Pierre brings so much to this film that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for him, uh, to the point that John Pierre, like he, I wouldn't say ad libbed his lines, but Truffaut encouraged him to to take lines and put them in his own language and to word mm. stuff in his own way. Well, there's a whole bit at the, the end where he's talking about stealing the money from his grandmother, yep. which I think is totally like just off the cuff, just kind of it's totally him. Just yeah, yeah. And that was his audition, actually. You can find it on YouTube. It's all over YouTube. His audition was basically that confession scene at the end and him just coming in to tell his own stories. And you actually can see see in the audition that um, I think he's 14 when he plays this role. Yeah. And they yeah. wanted he to when he was younger. 12. And well, the other they, kids they look say, a bit younger, I think, than him. Yeah, they do, yeah. And they say <laughs> to him, they go to him like, where you're 14, you're a little old. And he immediately just cuts back with, well, I'm not that tall. Like yeah. and he and he has that like as an actor as a person he just ha- he was shining what Truffaut mm. wanted to capture on screen, so like yeah. the idea that it's just Truffaut making this film work is just not true. It isn't true. Mm. Like um, also and- don't forget you've got the DP as well who is um, yeah. Henry Decay and he worked with a lot with uh, John Perry Melville as well. And, yeah, like, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. His like just the look of this film is fantastic. Like the opening shot. Which is just going, you know, it's kind of you've got the Eiffel Tower the in the tracking shot, of every yeah. shot, and it's almost like it's from a child's point of view, like looking in the yeah. back of the yeah. car as it's like driving around. Uh, Paris. Which is has like the most kind of um, it, most resonance when later on in the film, when the other childhood shot you get through Paris is through the bars of the police bars, van. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's so it, you have that kind of innocence taking away. It's mm-hmm. fucking wonderful, and like, it's yeah, it's. it's it's funny as well. Like um, my my brothers, uh, uh, my brothers had kids, and you know every relative of mine of my age that have kids, it then becomes that case. We've got to move away from the cities, and yeah, this was sure. a fun see seeing like how tough it must be actually if you have got a kid and you're slap bang in the middle of one of the major cities of the world that he is living. You know he's sleeping in a sleeping bag. Uh, between the kit, the the kitchen and the toilets, the yeah, door. And the front <laughs> door, yeah. Like the mom can't even sneak in and have her own life yeah. without like waking him up and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It must be an intense. Uh, some of the obviously people still experience to this day, but as much as possible, you try and retreat to the suburbs or the countryside if you've got kids because that's but then that allows the excitement of youth and that he can run away with his friend and they can be sort of lost in mixed in this city and no one really pays any attention to them yeah and that's kind of the excitement of that 
but also the the peril of that because he is just being passed off by person to person because none no grown up really wants to deal with him that much. That's the case. <laughs> of the film, yeah, it's such like a it's such a like attack on the system the idea that like the system takes away any ounce of like burgeoning kind of emotion this kid has or any ounce of like creativity or kindness that this kid has gets like stamped out of him by every single like authority figure that that age of 12 to 14 like it's an awkward age because you're not a cute child anymore you're not an adult you're just like this what could be seen as an irritant do you know what i mean because you're just Mm. this thing that's just there do you know what i mean and it's like it's yeah, like, I like remember he, being that age, and it's it's an awkward time. Yeah, and like you say, he's short for his age, and that's the funny thing. When you're 12 to 14, there'll be kids in the class that'll be like six foot two, <laughs> <laughs> like barely four foot six, <laughs> and the four foot six guy is very often the oldest one in the class as well. Sure. Like, uh, uh, and and some will go through growth bursts. And I thought it was really uh, one thing I noticed as well. He seemed like one of the older ones in the classroom in Paris. But then when he goes to the delinquent school, it seems oh, like yeah. all the kids there are, are a bit bigger, a mm. bit tougher, a bit mm. rougher. Um, because it is like usually the bad kids um, around them. And he just suddenly he starts to become smaller. And obviously he's in this vast expanse of the countryside now as well. He's sort of out of his elements. Yeah. Um, yeah. And more. he's become like know. a more That's minor figure in his kind anyway. of world. Um, and that, And you see that this kind of this weird again creativity that you see kind of sparking through the film little bits is now just completely stamped out at the end because he's just now this smaller figure in this world that just wants him to behave in the system that's everyone in his life just wants him to conform to the system like and stop being yourself please because you're annoying you make me do extra things like you make me have to yell at you and stuff like that and he just every authority figure wants him not to do that which is a i think is something Mm. As I mean, the, the film is semi-autobiographical, which we can get into a little bit. But like, he hasn't. Didn't he play him like three, six extra times or five other times in other There's films? five films, and one of That's them is short. Yeah, so it becomes a whole series for Truffaut. The, the the other films don't really hit as much as this one. Yeah, I've kind of been put off seeing them weirdly because yeah, I kind certainly. of I, I see Don Antoine as this perfect representation of that key age and then when I read like the plot summaries of all the other films it's like oh he just turns into a bit of a dick as an adult like we all do yeah <laughs> most of most of the other films seem to be obsessed with his love life really yeah um, very, and very specifically seem to be about that uh, whereas it's this is not about that this is absolutely about like um, it's well it's a coming of age film which in itself yeah. which is based on the director's life it, it, like you know the way he's obsessed with cinema his relationship with his parents exactly Truffaut um, but he doesn't set it in the past he sets it mm. in the contemporary France which I think is what I think we forget this in every coming of age film up until John yeah. Hughes basically that like the best way to do coming of age films is set it contemporary don't set yeah, it yeah even Lucas past. did that didn't they like, he yeah he did back. like yeah graffiti and everything like that like um and I think that's yeah. the power of this not feeling like a kind of flashback, yeah. not feeling like a kind of memory. Yeah. It feels yeah, it's like not nostalgia driven. It feels yeah, like, yeah. The and emotions think- never change. It's just the settings and and what the what their references are. It's yeah. like I think it's what it was so wise of Bo Burnham when he did Eighth Grade recently to have it be about a girl that has a YouTube channel, yes. is on social media, which obviously Bo Burnham sort of. He became famous on the cusp of that, but he didn't grow up with that. No, he didn't grow up with that. Yeah, yeah. He just was just before that. 
think that's whereas, the trouble. If you if you kind of set it in the past, you're gonna you're gonna be a bit too. I don't know if connect is the word, but too kind of like precious about those yeah. things that you grew can, up with and kind of absolutely. you dwell on that too much. I mean, it, it can work because that's what Greta Gerwig did with Lady Bird. Yeah. So it can work either way. I think they both have their own merits. And, uh, oh, and yeah, maybe I'm not saying that... it's a bad thing. I'm just saying no, it's no, just, but... a, just a different way. Of it's, doing a regular, it. it's a regular tool. Like so, so many. T- we'll see loads of stuff now f- that's set in like the 90s and noughties. Because, like I said, again, it's the stuff that the people who were growing up at that time didn't get, weren't being given TV and film shows to make. Yeah. I guess now there's one called Pen 15, I think, where they literally have them, the women in their 20s, 30s, but they're playing their 15 year old selves. So they're around 15 year old kids, but they themselves are 29, 30. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I'm like that as well. After I saw Lady Bird, I made like a, a playlist on Spotify of like, if I was to do a Lady Bird film about my life, these would be the songs that would be right. on there. What's, you know? what's on there then? Go on. Oh, uh, well, I'll just give you some of the bands. It's not even songs I necessarily like, but you know, it's like Slip, Not Wait and Bleed, uh, Hundred Reasons. I was, uh, <laughs> sure. There was, there's, I think there's always like bands that were like big when you were in sixth form. They had like one album that comes out in like your first year at sixth form. And then... They, they're touring that and then the second album's a flop and so no one outside of that sick form it means anything to them so the one I always go for is a band called JJ72 I remember them and unless you grew up in a very specific period like a two year period that band means nothing to why you why well it's now <laughs> exactly my one for that and they, the band doesn't mean that much to me actually like but like it's Cap Down that I, like Cap Down were rad yeah but exactly for those that those few years everyone i knew was obsessed with them like and i saw them live a thousand times it's you know because like they were like the, the one yeah. band that taught they, they were the first they band taught exactly yeah and they felt like you could connect with them and they were you know that you had that instant connection to them. but yeah. but yeah it was like it was things like the hives the strokes m&m like i was that was the thing i was remembering liam like when you were saying about you not wanting to have like the popular opinion one of the opinions i remember you expressing to me was how much you hated stan the Eminem song because <laughs> you thought it was stupid and the ending didn't make it was like oh wow it was him wow I don't get it <laughs> something like that because I was now a big you can't Eminem stop me fan, saying so. I stand this and stand that so yeah <laughs> so it's like you were saying about dad rock and everything so it was like System of a Down Papa Roach White Stripes Outcast Ash Offspring TLC Radiohead New Radicals, The Vines. You know, it's all those Andrew WK. <laughs> I saw someone wearing going. an Andrew WK hoodie yesterday. And I, I, was, I, I was like, I got like, stopped in the street. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, so some of these, Less Than Jake, remember that Scar Punk movement for a while? Mm, totally. <laughs> well, Cat Down were part of that, weren't they? They were. Less Than Jake was mm. one of the first gigs I ever went to. That was such a bad <laughs> gig. Like, oh, was that the Academy? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, was the kind of. Yeah. It was, it was so awful. Yeah, Cap I Down the supported them, didn't they? They did. They did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw the highs we at the went. Academy. I saw, I saw Ash at the Academy. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Gigs at that that Academy were bad. Like, I remember seeing Weezer there, and people were just. It wasn't even a mosh pit. It was just people, like, just pushing. Just, yeah, it was just And it crush. was just not for. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 400 blows. Yes. Yeah, 400 blows. <laughs> um. But yeah, like I guess if it was, you know, if it would, if Francois Truffaut had said it in his time period, then it would have been a bit, di- it would have been distancing yes. at the time. Mm. Whereas I suppose it was like hitting you with the now. 
it's like you say. I mean, there have been coming of age stories since Oliver Twist and, and everything else, but it's yeah, just sure, yeah, setting yeah. it in the French, not in the cities, but you know, modern day France, Paris, and you know, and I guess in those classrooms. The big reason, well, there was a few reasons why he didn't set it in the past. I don't know if this was a conscious thought that he wanted to make it current, but there was clearly two big things that he didn't want to touch, and one that he grew up during Nazi-occupied Paris. So mm. to do a coming-of-age film then is a very different story. Um, yeah. And the secondary is because of New Wave. Basically, like he was in, like New Wave was indie as fuck. You know, like it yeah. was. Uh, he had no money to shoot this. The reason it's in black and white is because he had no money to get color film. The reason that it's handheld is because he didn't have money to get trolleys. He didn't have money to get any cranes or anything like that. The reason it's all shot in real world is because he couldn't afford sets. The yeah. reason, like most of the actors, most of the extras are all real people, is because he asked real people just to be in it, like just to yeah. be in the background and stuff. So, like, it's just that complete separation from the studio system at all made this film seem what it is. That that all comes into this and produces this the aesthetic, what becomes New Wave, really. And, I mean, even in this, yeah. you see that loads of the actors in this are actually people, his contemporaries. Like, Jean Moreau plays, like, the dog walker. Um, she's not credited, you know, is, and she's, you know, one of the biggest French actresses ever. She, but she's just, you know, a friend of Truffaut, so she'll do this scene. Um, isn't Jean-Luc hear- Godard in it? Yeah, you hear his voice at least yeah. in one of the scenes, yeah. So it, it was these kind of people who, they weren't necessarily all working together, but they would help each other out because they were all working with no money more than anything else. Mm. Like, And this, you know, I think all that becomes a product of what we're, you know, we're looking at. He's basically, you know, his limitations is what pushes this through. I was going to say, with the editing, though, there's a lot of match cutting and dissolves yeah. and stuff like that. And it's, it is. And that's yeah. a massive new wave thing, like mm. both of those things. Yeah. Like you see that again and again and again. I love those old dissolves, though, in older films because you can tell when it's about to go to an optical effect because there's just a slight variation like, in the colour. In the colour. There's a yeah. little alter. Just you can tell it's about to dissolve or do something. I love that. You song. never really get that now, do you, dissolves? Not really, really, no. Mm. It kind of it's, it's a bit of a slower paced thing, I think, and films are mm. just a lot faster. I use them a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, yeah. But yeah, like you say, you can see so much of what became independent cinema from there, like making it up as you go along, low budgets, um, not necessarily having big stars. It being more about the director's personal vision, not being so story focused. You can't plot yeah. this out as like a, a narrative. This isn't going to be something that Robert McKee teaches you in a screenwriting class. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How do you screenwrite? You know, this in that way. It's not. It's pieces it's, of yeah. memories. Well, this yeah, is yeah. A, I tell you, like obviously, Terence Malick is borrows a lot from this kind of you know Tree of Life, and even like uh, Richard mm. Linklater with like uh, yeah. Boy and I think, some I mean, of his early films like Slacker yeah. and stuff like that. Definitely Even the this. before like, trilogy I was thinking of. Because like, you'll have moments in this film that will kind of, just for a few seconds, it will just drift off the main character and just follow someone else for a few seconds and then kind mm. of drift back. Yeah. Like, you know, I, like I in the school, look, yeah. like you'll it'll focus on that. My, my favourite bit was the little, who's that, he was like the scruffy kid that was always in your class. Yeah. Kind oh, of like, I love that kid in this. Yeah. And he, he reminded me of a kid that was his in. Paper. Yeah. He reminded me of a kid that was in our school early and called Carl Sharp, who kind of he had like lo- long blonde hair, and he'd sit there with his fountain pen against his head, and not realise that the, the inks just what? like blurred all into his blonde fringe. But it just reminded me of that when he was like getting ink all over like his page, and he kept tearing his pages out and just 
tearing it up and then. Oh, everyone would do that with their exercise books, wouldn't they? You'd, every exercise book would have had at least two or three middle parts pulled out, so you could do, you could play squares or something in a boring <laughs> lesson. There was always weird shit you did as a kid. Did like, did you ever have friends who used to like stab a coke can with a compass and then drink out of the, the hole? Yes. Like, why? Yeah, I do why remember people threatening that? to stab people with compasses. Yeah, the compass was a deadly weapon, as far as we were concerned. Was I was as close as I was close as Sutton Coldfield came to a knife epidemic. It was a legal knife you can bring into school was the compass. Why are they insisting on us having fountain pens? That's what I don't understand. They make a mess. I thought, and they're not I, uh, that good. Yeah, I thought that when I was watching the I switched the to rollables pretty quickly. Yeah, I can't yeah. write with fountain pens. I was always awful with it. And I used to get shouted at by all the teachers the, in VZ for, for using them. Like, the worst uh, was if you, kind of, if you catch the paper in the wrong, wrong way, or it kind of like yeah. sprayed a bit of the ink and you're like, oh, fuck's sake. Or you got a well, you had the Parker fountain pens, so that their cap, their capsules, their ink capsules you buy, they wouldn't work on other pens yeah. if you run out, and you had to try and you oh. try and do it with a with someone else a different oh, yeah, capsule, and, Harry, and you always have to go everywhere. Capsules around, to, so you can. Yeah. Ch- it's so ridiculous. Like, you always have we, some. When did we grow up? <laughs> like, some dickhead would put them was, under there, like. A- under their metal tin, the, the capsules, you know, the little yeah, thing, yeah, and then they'll hit their tin, and then the ink would just go. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing. Again, uh, so often you you see previous decades of of what's what's there and what's not. So there were like with our school, there was this new building for the design and technology team, and they also built a new uh, school a sports hall during the time we were there. But before then, you're in like, but in other classrooms, you're in still old wooden desks that have probably been there since the sixties, seventies, maybe mm, even the fifties. Yeah, 50s. there's that kind of generational uh, thing. It's weird. There's always that transition depending yeah. on which room you were in. Uh, sometimes you're on a hard wooden table, and sometimes you're on like a newish, yeah, you yeah. know, metal, and yeah, it's it's always so weird. Like, um, but and there's always those affectations that schools bring upon you, and especially because we went to a grammar school, so it was like you know, it was private school for people that couldn't quite afford it <laughs> for the most part but they wanted to think they were a part of a, a fancier school i was you talking know. to some international friends the other day and i was telling them about the 11 plus the fact that we all have this system which is a complete lie it's based on bullshit yeah. and most yeah. people who get in have been like trained by the school they went to or like a tutor just to pass this test like mm-hmm. it's nothing yeah. like but it's a lie in our society that we have that it, it these are the more intelligent people and it's like this well is, i didn't realize was how, oh what I didn't realise was how how out of step we were. Like there are only about there were only about 150 grammar schools when we were in Visa. I, I think yeah. there's probably even fewer now. Oh, yeah. So we were weird anyway. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's because you know we're in we're in Sutton Coalfield again, a place with like certain affectations about it. It's sure. like I re- again it was like do you remember the the education maintenance allowance? I think oh, I was no. literally the only kid in our year that applied for it and was eligible for it. Oh, I got that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like I think I might have been the only one in Visa. Yeah, I think I was the only one in Visa that got it. And boy, did some of the rich kids really hate me for that. God, <laughs> God. <laughs> I, I literally had to say to one of them, like, "I'm sorry, my family's poor." <laughs> <laughs> it's sorry, funny. What? I just think, I just, it's funny us talking about school so quickly because of this film. Like, I think the film yeah. does such a good way of just making because like, obviously they're shooting in real classrooms. But this has a, such a way of bringing back school to me, even though I, yeah. it feels like this film feels like Paris in the fifties was like like eighteen yeah. eighties or something like. Yeah. But like, yeah. but there's such an immediacy and it's just a relatability of sitting in classrooms as a kid that they managed mm. to capture in this really oh, yeah. well. Like, 
like really kids around items yeah. and you know a lot of yeah. the things that happen to the main kid in this it's like it's he's just a a victim of circumstance because it's just something that's got passed around it just happens to land on him and he gets in trouble for having a picture of the girl yeah um, it, because, like it starts out with him getting caught with the pinup and he takes the blame for it and because yeah. of that he gets given extra homework that he can't do at home because his home isn't a place that he can do homework so the next day he decides not to go into school because he didn't do the homework which leads yeah. to like you know and that that escalation is the whole that him ending up in jail at the end like is yeah. all because of this pinup it's such that is masterful yeah. like mm. but i wonder is it also because literally the teacher knows to look or's decided he's one he's going to look at yes. so maybe his eyes were on him and then when it reaches him that's cuz cuz teachers will pick on particular kids yeah, regardless yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean I won't name names, but there was one teacher in particular that it became a running gag for us that if it was an Asian kid that did it, that teacher would go to, like ape shit on them and not the other ones. In hindsight, we should have reported that person. Yeah, but we didn't. But it was a running gag. So it is those teachers can be horrible bullies and but yeah. You have to remember they're, they're people the themselves that just dislike yeah, people yeah. like anyone else. So they probably yeah. will take a disliking to someone, and they probably maybe unconsciously will just just go gravitate to that student well that's what i, mean. what I saw like, in yeah. this as well i saw um the kid in this Antoine, um having this burgeoning creativity and the, the teacher being annoyed at him for that because he's not yeah. just a cog in the machine so, so when he draws on that, the wall do you mean yeah yeah like yeah, uh, yeah. he's drawing on the wall well, the, and he, the poetry later on as well like because i mean to be is, fair he did copy balzac but yeah you know yeah. He, it was it was through innocence not we, through i was gonna to say i system. could talk about this forever because i think ev- like i was that age i was yeah. copying that yeah. stuff when i was trying to be creative that's what you do like yeah and nothing he did felt like i don't think he even knew the words plagiarism in this film you know like when yeah. he's getting accused of it he's just like i was inspired by but this the thing, thing is it's like you, like when you're a kid you're in a band you learn by playing other people's songs yeah, yeah, yeah. you learn Covering, this is yeah. how you learn how you become your own artist by mm. taking what you enjoy from that you may copy it for a while but eventually you'll it'll branch out and they're like stifling mm. his yeah, like explicitly in this too. film, they show you that the lessons is literally them copying him speaking oh, the hair. Like, that's their lesson, is to copy down the yeah, poem that's already written. And they're judged on their writing, not the content of what they write. And like That, the was, fans, that was the way people were educated back then. Yeah. It was just rote, drilling it into them again and again and again. Again and again and again, yeah, absolutely. And like him not him not suiting this system is absolutely yeah. what gets him in trouble for that. Oh yeah, like like the way that we were taught science at school just did not interest me in the slightest. Sure. But outside of school, like I remember watching Richard Linklater's Waking Life and that described the pursuit and the, the reason for science so much better than any lesson ever did. And I became way more interested in science than I ever was at school. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and that's not even necessarily the teachers that want to do that. They might be constricted by what you've got to cover. You know, that's always a, a constant yeah, sure. source of contention, what they're getting taught anyway. Uh, because, But also, I think it was interesting because um, you were saying, like, this teacher that really picks on Don, Donielle, um, whereas the, the English teacher seems a little bit more weak-willed. He doesn't quite have as much control mm. over the class, and he doesn't actually really pick on Antoine at all. He has to take yeah. Antoine out of the class, but he's not... And then he kind of tries to console everyone at the end of it, of, of that lesson. And again, it's like, depends on what teacher you've got, really, as to whether you were good at something or not. Or not, or if um, you took an interest in it or not, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. And that clash you need to have well, that yeah. right combination, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and yeah. we see on the outside as well what he takes joy in is the cinema. Like so, when mm. he ha- when he bunks off for a day, he goes to the cinema. They, you know, they go to the puppet show later. Like, but 
when they actually have the fam the one family day when they see they're all happy it's going to the cinema and going to see that this is a film that's obsessed with that's a great pursuit you know and that's lovely and obviously that's mm. from Truffaut's own, own life but you can see that like that whole love for something exists it's just no one's nurturing it and no one's looking at him you know no one's really wanting to pay attention to it I think I misremembered I misremembered film being a big part of Antoine's life it wasn't really I think I thought it was going to be more of like it's a love letter to cinema and it's not necessarily but that is one of his releases yeah it's, I mean yeah, it's not that we see yeah. him watching something it's actually the live it's not Punch and Judy but it's like it's in the Punch and Judy form but it seems to be Little Red Riding Hood that they're watching ah uh, yeah sure um, I did write but the kids are all, down, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the kids are all wrapped in attention. I love that as well. And that was like the merging of realism. Like those are clearly not child actors. Those are just kids watching a show watching and he's documenting show. it. Yeah, yeah. And their faces are, are just fascinating to watch, you know, looking watching other kids watching other people watching something and how, you know and like I said, that's that merging of them walking through real places and real people, but also um yeah. Yeah, I love that. And uh I do love. <laughs> I love how when they when they escape to this. Oh, one of the best bits is when the the PE teachers walking them through the streets and <laughs> they one all by just one. disobey. I and that loved was like, like, that bit. Yeah, that was like because I wasn't one that would play truants, you know, but uh, or you know, skive off school. But when we did games in the last few years, you would sometimes maybe when we were given independence to go out and do like go to do swimming or whatever we might try and escape a bit early mm. or in general <laughs> studies classes that was like your way you pushed against the system a little bit but i do remember i'd I love that as well like them just being free on a school day and and how whenever you're outside of, when you're in when you're in the outside world at the time that you're not usually there it's always weird and different yes and i always thought as a kid like when i had to go to a dental appointment or something during the school hours i was always super paranoid that someone was going to grab me by the shoulder and say where are you going you know and i'd be like <laughs> get to the appointment as quickly as possible and get back but just being on a bus at like 9:45 was so weird and it was a different group of people. It's like, um, and I didn't realise now if I had because the light was different as well. Because I've I've seen kids out and about like when I've been out of work and it's like I've no idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it's like you've got to go to a job and you've just got to get there maybe two hours earlier than usual. And you're just around a different group of people that have a different schedule of life. Yeah. But like yeah. I said, if if I saw a kid running like skiving, if I was out like to next week or something when I'm off work for a week and and I see a kid, I'm not going to think, shouldn't you be at school? No. But the kid is probably thinking, everyone knows I should be at school. <laughs> yeah, you're and, right. and like I said, when they're yeah. running through the city, they're like, the, the general indifference to them by every. Sometimes people would turn around and look at them, but that was more because they like stepped out near their foot or something. Yeah, or got in the way of the car a little bit. But like you feel it because it's from their point of view that everyone is looking at them to judge them to be at school. Yeah. But in reality, no one is. Like it doesn't, like no one cares. Like really. Mm. No one cares. Absolutely no one cares. That one boy that was able to escape for five days from the delinquency office says it was great. <laughs> and the truth is you see that as well in the fairground scenes as well, when you're on an equal mm. level with adults at that point, when like the graviton, I think it's called, is spinning around and everyone is trapped in that machine is reduced to the same kind of childish kind of behaviour mm. um, yeah. of just like floating and, and playing really and not this kind of... It's not that that moment. The weightless, the weightness of like society goes away, and there's no authority. You know, like in that yeah. point, and everyone's the same at that point. Like, 
I think also the problem with Doniel is he never quite comprehends the, the immediate consequences of what's going to happen to him. He just sort of goes on, or he becomes too fearful of them and tries to evade them. So he yeah. just doesn't go to school. He doesn't go to his parents because he's afraid of what they'll say to them, not thinking, well, they're going to find out eventually. <laughs> but yeah. he doesn't know how to play the system, whereas the other kid that does also uh, skive off school with him, he does, and it also helps that he's rich. So he's now got parents that are indifferent in a completely different way they're older and they're kind of doddery and he's the one that can he also somehow is able to get to the middle of this countryside place to yeah yeah probably because he just said to his parents i'm going out for a day i kind of (laughs) can afford the train fare to get there and back you get the impression with him because he's rich he's going to be okay you know he's protected in a way that um doniel isn't protected from the world because of that money and i love that kid's house by the way with the the but like i said i think he's more not worldly (laughs) wise but he just knows how to play the system better yes exactly And maybe that does come through his wealth you know yeah yeah those cats meowing annoyed me though because like if you're in a room with cats they don't just sit there meowing all the time (laughs) like it's just like overdubbed i was like it's a bit unnecessary I always see that in films when a, when an animal makes a noise and you look at the animal and they're not doing yeah, the not, facial not expression that they would do if they made a noise. Like that's always like a big thing that I notice. But yeah, I I didn't I almost totally didn't kind of buy their friendship as well. And then when he comes to see him at the reform school at the end, I was like, oh no, they were really friends. I just you know I got this wrong kind of thing. He did really care about him. Yeah, but then his mom's there as well, and it's a totally different kind of like just how they are with each other. Like, he was yeah, probably more yeah, excited yeah. to see his friend than he was to see his mom. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it is a particularly cruel thing, and it is like... Um, and the thing he realised towards the end that she literally didn't have him for eight years, that he was with his grandparents Grandma, and then yeah. came to her. So he's always just been a bit of an inconvenience to the life that she wants to lead. And not everyone has that maternal, paternal instinct. If anything, the the stepfather seems to enjoy his company a bit more. No, I think he just puts <laughs> up with him, to be honest. I because as soon as he could, as, well, as soon yeah. as he wash his hands of him, he did. Do you know what I mean? He, yeah. He was just a bit of a burden, and he just put up with him. Um, but he would actually... I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm, it's, it's in slight degrees. <laughs> They're both pretty indifferent, but he seems to be one... But yeah, like I said, he's neither of them particularly want him around. No, um, and the film does tiptoe over like an issue that I don't like people doing in films, when like, uh, sh- like it's the kind of weight of the mother's responsibility to raise the child, and I feel mm. like the mom gets quite a lot of criticism in the film compared to mm. kind of the father figures. Um, yeah. Both the biological father, who isn't, isn't even in this film at all, and the yeah. stepfather. Got both kind of a little bit get less kind of judgment to them than the mom does mm. um especially because that gets into like the abortion aspect as well but yeah, yeah. it's not i felt only felt that a little bit i didn't feel it kind of so strong um mm. it's there's i think in a lot of ways the film is actually a little bit sympathetic to her as well in the fact mm. that i think it's sh- like the way she's shot as well. Well, the way she's she a looks. victim of circumstance as well. I guess. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. And it's she's very young still, yeah. and and I think the, it, the film is empathetic to the fact that she didn't want this, and she's also trying her best. You know, she's also trapped by this, and she is actually trying. And uh, genuinely, when like they they're kind of like we need to send him to this school, and she's more concerned if if it can be next to the sea. Because that will be better for him, kind of thing. Like, it's it's 
that I think that's her being genuine, even if it's a complete mm. madness thing to say. Ma- ma- if, like, maybe one of the problems as well is that that's the only form of authority that a female could mo- usually has in this situation. That it, if it's teachers and headmasters and everyone else, managers and, and police officers, they're going to be male. Yeah. And really the only female authority figure you'll have will be your mother or maybe your grandmother. And, yeah. and if you were at a primary school, maybe more the teacher end of it as well. Um, and, and also because this is 1959's France, so it's very, <laughs> exactly. very, very patriarchal <laughs> structure uh, as well. So because she's the only, as is often the case, because it's only one female, they then have to represent all of the portrayal of females in film. Yeah, I think the only other woman you, you know? see is the other boy's mom, and you only see her going to the toilet, I think. That's it. Mm. <laughs> Basically. It, uh, and, he's sta- and when he's standing behind those two older women discussing... Oh, and he, I can't remember he what pulls Rapal's face. Like, it's, it's yeah. about childbirth uh, or something. It is a medical thing, and I can't remember what it is, yeah. but it is a medical thing. Yeah, and he's disgusted by it. Mm. Um, but the, uh, the... I mean, the father thing, I thought was played so well. Um, in the fact that, like, the first time you're introduced to a stepdad, you think that he's, like, you know, oh, he's really cool, he's a cool, fun stepdad, you know, he's quite supportive. And then the more you kind of see of that relationship, you realise, actually, he's kind of just putting up with him. What's mm-hmm. going on here? And, like, the film gives you hints, is the whole English dialogue scene, like, which they're literally yeah. just repeating, where is the father? Where is yeah. the father? Like, over and over again, uh, which is obviously a direct... You've got to say it like with a lisp. <laughs> yeah, with a lisp, because they're English and they can't talk properly. Um, that's that like, is so, that's so like being. If someone said, "Where's the father?" I'll be like, "Yeah, I know what you're saying." Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you'd be like teaching it. us Spanish and insisting we say, "Donde esta Barcelona?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like that. I was like, you, "You're fine. You're fine. We can understand. You speak English fine. Don't worry about it." We're but, not going to learn French, so you know. <laughs> and like, I think the lack of kind of care of the society that we have is kind of echoed by the film's presentation of the fact that we don't really see that we don't really know about his father until right at the end of the film like it's hidden Mm. from us the whole time and there are clues there but then nothing that you're going to solve without it telling you and i just think that structure just pieces in the fact that people don't care about his life people don't ask him questions people don't talk to him Mm. about his father you know and i think yeah and i think that it's just so. I thought that was masterful. I just I thought that was masterful the way it's pieced in. Really did. That scene is the first time he's ever been asked by a grown up, and that yeah. grown up is off screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. How how are you feeling? It's the first time anyone's bothered. Anyone's bothered to actually ask him what's going on, or and he like, actually will yeah. talk. And he will talk when you actually ask him what's going on and what's happened. Like, and you start piecing stuff about, like that. You know, he hasn't lived with his mom his whole life. His nan died that he was living with. He's gone into social care before. Like his, you know, his stepfather doesn't, you know, wash his hands in as soon as possible. Like, it's it's heartbreaking actually when it comes. Down I mean, to like, he's, doesn't his stepfather though, give money to get him a new duvet, and then his mom obviously just spends it on something else. Although I knew as soon as he lit that candle and then put the blanket over the whatever it was, the little yeah, thing, I was like, come on, that's not going to lead to any good. Um, I was also thought it was interesting to watch it from the perspective as someone who grew up like a child actor. And I think, although I don't know if he'd done acting before, he obviously was involved in the film industry, like mm. you say, or at least he, his relatives were. He knew people within it. Yeah. Um, it feels like it's a, there's basically two lines you can go down as a director. Like if I was a director, it depends on what you're making. And if you're making something like the 400 Blows, then you you don't want a child actor essentially because yeah. child actors 
their instincts will be they'll be tra- you know you're st- you're basically stage trained when you're at that age it's all about enunciating and and you show offs as well you you want an excuse to show off in some way shape or form mm. uh by going on stage and this is a thing that needs it to not be a show off so yeah. if you're like if you're making a Harry Potter film you go for the drama school kids but if you're making something like this or when um Shane Meadows made This Is England he went and found Thomas Turgus in like a youth center Sure. That's where you because you got to sort of be able to mold it, and they won't know the they won't have any bad habits, and because it's going for realism, you you want to go down that path, and 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 they're, they're more malleable, really. So yeah, like if even though I grew up a child actor, I you know and I was surrounded by them. They're 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 a weird breed. They're they're a weird breed. You're not going to know what you're going to get by one of those actors. You might yeah. get gold. You might get something really bad. But it's that kind of like I don't know, like. Just don't know what you're going to get. It's kind of exciting, I think, as well. Mm. So you might not get you might not get as authentic a performance in the traditional acting Mm. sense. No, exactly. Yeah, but but you will also you'll get that more as as truth, especially if you look for a kid that grew up around that world. So obviously, this kid grew up in Paris. Thomas Turgus grew up in Grimsby and and going into these youth centres and was probably grew up in that sort of environment as well. So that's the that that is the wise way to go. When when casting and, and directing because some of these because some of the other kid actors, it's always it's always funny with foreign languages. You can't necessarily tell what are good or bad performances. Yeah, really. it can be difficult. Yeah, you don't know you don't know the cadence of, of talking that what sounds yeah. natural and what sounds unnatural. That's why I always thought George Lucas maybe the reason he wrote such bad dialogue was because he loved Japanese films, and uh, <laughs> the, you know sometimes the direct translations would be lines along the lines of from my point of view the Jedi are evil. So it just looks it looks alright in subtitled form, but then when it's coming out of Hayden Christensen's mouth, it doesn't quite work. Because I, I think the kid that's sort of the school snitch that gets them in trouble. Yeah, is that the kid with the goggles it, as well? Yeah, the yeah, he's got the of, goggles. Yeah, yeah. When when he sometimes has to say lines of dialogue, they do sound very wooden, and uh, to, to my ear, they didn't sound naturalistic. But maybe it's a stage. It kind of works it anyway because he's sort of p- yeah. putting on a performance to those parents anyway. Oh, is he not in? Oh, I thought he was. I thought he was yeah. ill. <laughs> Little asshole. I, I do look, and also to be fair, that kid's reaction when he does see his goggles what, did look kind of heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. <laughs> that was. I, I I thought the kid acting in this was good, like mm. in a in a way that like I know we spoke when we spoke about the Searchers, the kid acting in that we were both like this is rough <laughs> like, yeah. like people that kids don't speak like this and this is really weird and and then compared to this that these it did feel like i don't know what trafo was doing behind the camera but it felt like at least he'd managed to cast really well or at least got the kids into a sense of like realism with mm. their performance with it um and what yeah. my favorite thing about it as well was like i think this is real real for like that age as well that they all kids all feel like they're wearing a costume like they all feel like they're trying to be adults like they're they're getting told all the time to be adults like the way they would um carry their little suitcases around and the way they would dress <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and the way they would shake hands when they say hi and bye and stuff like so, that yeah. <laughs> like, and i just thought I the shaking hands thing was so funny to me and it, and it's like they're it's like the life they're told they're you know they have to be adults they have to grow up they have to kind of mature into people now but the system isn't even letting them do this do that because at school they're constantly getting told off at any time they do anything like that yeah. you know 
maybe it's also because the notion of the teenager was still quite a fresh notion as yeah. far as it being their yeah, own child or an period adult, of time. No that was more like a yeah, it was more something that came about in the fifties in America and, and elsewhere, and then with rock and roll music, I suppose that was where you started to get that notion of that Some that twelve that to age, twelve yeah, to sixteen gap is actually a different experience. To yeah. it's not adulthood, but it's not childhood either. Um, and like you say, so like the, the, they're having to have the affectations, but they're not ready for it yet. I suppose, yes. maybe. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. No, totally. I don't know. And, I, and it, I'm just gonna have to assume it's real, real to the fifties. That portrayal yeah. was real. Oh yeah, but um, the schooling system won't have changed. I mean, it's still, it's still the canings and everything as well at that point, which is just so sadistic. The, the British film, I suppose, I would most compare this to would be Kes. Yes, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. It, like, I was thinking about Kez the whole time. What I couldn't remember about Kez, and maybe you guys might remember, is what's the like? What's the product of Kez? What happens at the end of Kez? Is it the similar sort of, like, downer kind of... Oh, it's incredibly yeah. down. His son, his, his, his older brother kills his, the Kestrel, and he's got to go start working down the mines. Down the mines, that's, that's <laughs> what I couldn't the remember. the grimmest yeah. of grim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, he's like, you know, he's still clearly not a grown-up, but automatically he's going to have to start working stop being, in, yeah. at like 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Literally, they kill his innocence in the form of the Kestrel. Yeah, the one kid, kid um, takes revenge by killing the Kestrel, doesn't they? And then Billy then I thought has, it was his older brother. I might be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think I might so. And then Billy has to retrieve like the, the dead bird's body from like a waste bin, doesn't he? <laughs> it's yeah, it's mm-hmm. proper grim. Kez is a downer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's Ken Loach. What do you expect? Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, but talking of like other films, like Spielberg yeah. loved this film. This was a big influence yeah. on Spielberg. And like, and what you, you can, it's obvious. I mean, like the kid acting stuff in itself and, and shooting stuff from a childhood point of view is absolute Spielberg. But also, like, Spielberg says it's the people being people element that was yeah. what taught him about making films. And, like, being able to watch a film that's just people being people and, and yeah. something that feels really connected absolutely sparked everything for Spielberg, apparently. Yeah, I think Truffaut has a humanity about him still yeah. that he still believes that he thinks film is a, a means to document people yeah, uh, in a way. Whereas I've always found every time I've tried to watch Jean-Luc Godard film, it's so cold, it's so detached, <laughs> and it is more about commenting on the medium of film itself than it is about society and, and humanity. Like, it feels... His films have always felt less human. I've never been able to complete most of them. I've tried, like, even, like, that one he did, Goodbye to Language. I only managed about half an hour of that. I, I tried to watch Band Apart. I didn't really enjoy that. And then when I saw um, the Agnes Varda film, Faces Places, and he just refused to meet her. Oh, like, God. Yeah, you are a tosser. Yeah. I get that sense. You're a tosser. I and think the way I-, I would say it is that maybe Truffaut is... Like, if you like McCartney, you like Truffaut. And if you like <laughs> Lennon, you like Goddard. Do you know what I mean? I know it's what you mean. Of, yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah, totally. Totally. Varda, Christ, she just exudes, like, humanity. Like, in every mm. pore of her. She's so fascinated by people. She's so, like, obsessed yeah. with the way, like, people work and look at each other and, and think about each other. And she's, yeah. she cares about everyone she puts on film in that way. Yeah. That it was so easy for me to, to start watching her films and get into her. Whereas I think Truffaut... As I've got the greatest Mac experience again with Truffaut, like, um, but I, from this film alone, you can tell that it's a similar sort of like um, personability of his subject and, and relatability, mm. which really will connect. And also the fact that the main character is him. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Um, I've seen Day for Night as well from Truffaut, sure. and that is about the making of a film. And I think when Goddard will do something about the making of a film, it'll be about him and film itself. Whereas Day for Night are about the people working towards getting this film. And and actually, um, Jean Pierre is is in it as like this very temperamental young actor, <laughs> and he's a he's a really kind of the worst kind of self important, bratty, <laughs> uh, temperamental guys and. And everyone else is trying to work around him, and it's really and that's about the love of cinema, but the people who make it. Yes, right. And like I said, I think Truffaut never forgets it being about the people rather than the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas I think a lot of auteurs, it, it's like trying to communication as a two way street. Whereas with a lot of auteurs, I think it's like this is my vision. And this is me, and I won't help you. I won't hold your hand, or I don't yes. care if you like it or not. And I think that's—I like, oh, mean, I think that's but you're going to insist on getting it made, okay? Because he was <laughs> Truffaut was a big—he loved Hitchcock. You know, Truffaut was like absolutely adored Hitchcock, and he adored Wells as well. Like um, that was the people that he'd always go on about about being the auteurs. And both of them are like hammers. You know, they were full, like as directors, they they are the kind of as you were saying, it's my vision way. But and get the sense watching this that he isn't quite that kind of director even though that doesn't yeah. stop him being an auteur at all at, at, at all but um it, he, i get the impression from him that he's a much more people orientated like director and i think that really hit me with the actual the last shot as well which for me the last shot was a it, I, i've been told this was revolutionary at the time. Films didn't end mm. on freeze frames. They didn't end on like mm. looking down the camera. Like this is both something that you can consider trite. You know, it became mm. the language of TV, really. In the end, like sitcoms almost. Well, what's, like, what was it we watched in the seventies that ends like that? It's um, the one with uh, fuck, my mind's gone dead. Uh, the one on the train <laughs> car. Oh, is it Pelham? Yeah, Pelham ends on a freeze yeah. frame, doesn't it? With this. Oh, it does. Yeah, head. with him popping around the corner. Yeah. Uh, Butch Cassidy does that Butch end Cassidy, on a freeze yeah, frame? So, yeah, yeah, Butch yeah. Cassidy ends in a freeze frame. Yeah. Uh, well, but I dire- think what that is. Sorry, well, we'll talk about it, but I think one director it just related to as Breakfast an author was um, again Breakfast Club was Jonathan Demme because Jonathan Demme was obsessed with these like first person shots, you looking down the barrel, um, and he would do that a lot in a way of like actually connecting you to the subjects of his films and really bringing out that humanity and like him turning at this point and looking straight down the barrel and and freeze frame i was like that's a like a demi shot that's like a that's such a fascinating way to finish the film like how did i think you can read it a hundred ways but i'm interested in how you guys yeah. read that ending like uh i think i saw it as um he's constantly been running away but there's literally nowhere further to go at this point he's yeah. come up to the end there's literally nowhere further for him to run so he's just going to have to turn back and face this world that really doesn't care about him yeah. still, but that's the only world he's got available to him. And also, because like you say, so much of this is about, this is a child that's a reflection of society and what society's done to him. So it can be almost quite accusatory as well. Like, you failed this kid. He still's not happy, and we have failed the youth. Yeah, I, I, saw, it, I saw it as a challenge, almost. Like, like, you've watched this for, like, the last hour 40 you know what are you going to do about it or mm-hmm. what do you think mm. about it kind of thing like you what do you think about me now you've watched my life kind of thing I, and also like or you know he's as you say nowhere else to go he's just he's done this wild es- escape he's finally been to see the sea which has been a, a thing that they talked about a few times in the film that he'd want to see the sea and what else does he do like that's he hasn't got us you know he's not nothing's been solved by him doing this 
I just love the tracking shot that led up to that. I thought that was so I well love, done. Yeah, it was. And like, I just didn't know if it was gonna like just carry on like that until the very end. But there were a few, a few cuts. But no, I thought that was really well. And with done. the music coming on in as yeah. well, like it just. Um, and also two other things from earlier in the film I remember as well was first of all him talking about the end you've already had an ending in the Balzac thing and that sort of that mm. sense of a realisation so maybe he's realising something in that moment as well like Balzac and he's come to terms with okay so this is the world I've got to be a part of or something maybe he gets it more now or that he knows that he'll always be able to escape somehow like it will be just down to him he's on his own and he's realised that but also it's not the only time that he was frozen in place there was the also when he's taking the mug shots yes good point there is that moment that he's frozen in time so maybe that's how society views him and this is how he sees himself and that's what the two different Frames, like yeah. straight single frozen images are maybe yeah, yeah. one's yeah kind of free and then the other ones kind of I don't know trapped yeah. literally yeah. literally was moved from one cage to a slightly smaller to a, a cage so, so small so you couldn't even lie down cage like a little dog kennel yeah <laughs> those cages are insane like I, yeah. I was just like what like when they when they kept on putting more people in it like when all the sex workers come over and they shove them there in is the, well, like there is that sense that just Paris is clearly so crammed there's those big cities like Paris car. and London that there is no space for anyone why yeah. are we all here? yeah absolutely. I love I love the cars they're driving around in because it looks like the, the screen has been <laughs> squished they're so narrow and tiny it's like how it's, how can you fit four people in those cars? I don't. That's always the observation Americans make about Europe, isn't it? How tiny our cars Some are. Cars. I think every every car in America is basically designed. But like even a, a mini is wider than that. These cars are so yeah. narrow. They're, like, they're almost yeah, like yeah. what you'd see in a Disney cartoon. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind yeah. of look to. I was thinking actually yeah. the cage that the cage that he's in the first cage where he gets moves out of when they've got a few more prostitutes going in there. It's like in London now you probably have to spend about seven hundred a month to to get that place <laughs> at least. I couldn't believe when they moved him into that single cell like phone booth yeah. thing, and I was like, it that's was insane. shocking. <laughs> And he just has to sit there staring off in the world through these like weird chicken wire bars. It was just, I couldn't believe that was the police station. It's like, but yeah, I don't think we've like really explained. Oh, I mean, there's not really much of a plot, but like, it's just yeah, about it's a, quite it's quite episodic. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of have three. Is it three? Maybe episodes, kind of. So you kind of have the kind of beginning part of the school, uh, leading up to kind of. Um, him going on truancy, and then the second one would be what well, when he him, ends up in the printing, the printing. Mill. Yeah, when he ends up. So the second one would away. then be kind of the stealing of the typewriter. Yeah, mm. and then the and then the third one would be like the police, and then the the kind of Borstal, whatever it is. Like the so, yeah, I mean, Borstal's literally only like twenty minutes. Yeah, that's yeah. The, in total. Like, it's worth note. Obviously, the the typewriter that he steals is his his stepdad's. Stepdad's like typewriter, like, which is a real thing. Um, Ch- um, Chafreau stole a typewriter. Okay. Like, which I suppose now it'd be a laptop, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it would. Be, yeah. I do love the fact that they're running around Paris lugging this around, and they neither of them want to carry oh, it. It's brilliant. Keep... <laughs> it's too heavy. They keep swapping it, and the kind of even just the visual like metaphor of like they've been lumbered with this thing now. Like that's too. Mm. That's too heavy to do anything with. You can't yeah. sell it. It's really expensive. So what else do you do then? Put it back. 
Like, I do also like that the one heavy tough guy that they deal with to to sell the typewriter tries to dob them off, but he's also incredibly short. <laughs> he's like their height. But I love the fact that that his his uh, disguise to put it back is just to put a hat on, just showing how like young and childlike they are. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's so not worthy of any of the punishment they go for. It's such oh. a it's so bad. Like. Yeah, uh, because like he's even, he gets caught putting it back. Like a more sympathetic view would be, like you shouldn't have done that, but it's okay. Like kind of thing. Mm. Like because no like, no harm done. But like we said, his stepdad they, just wanted to get rid of him. Really, he was just fan of him. Yeah, it's was... like it's like the whole world takes the first chance they get to kind of lock him away. It's then yeah. rather than do anything else with him, just like oh Christ, we got. It's almost like the whole great. children should be seen and not heard kind of thing, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, you're just... I mean, yeah, when when the stepdad is sitting there with the police officer, and the police officer has pretty much all the sympathy in the world for the parent for what he's going through. Yeah. And they, like, make a little lip service to, like, oh, we can't just do all this, but shall we? Yeah, okay, we'll do it. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he essentially so, says that, you know, would, you'd have to give away all your parental rights, wouldn't you? And he'd be a product of the system, basically. And, like, and he's like, alright. The mom can't wait to. It's like, and, I, I, and you almost... I can't massively blame her, like because of like the way you see her suffering stuff. I mean, you can blame her really, but I'm, like just like the way like she can't even like have an affair without bringing her kid into it. Like she can't sneak into the house late at night without waking her kid up. She can't. She hasn't got any kind of freedom in that 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 place. Like she kind of it kind of society's kind of telling her off for working as well. You get the kind of the police are like. Oh, you're one of those families that both of you work. No wonder he's a problem, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, yeah, isn't he left at home and, quite frequently? And he's like, well, yeah, we, we work. Yeah, we have to work to afford this tiny apartment that we can't even fit in. <laughs> like, it's, it's you wonder like, again, like, yeah, like if he was a generation later, he would be like, oh, he just watches TV all day. Yeah, latchkey. which obviously they just yeah. don't have. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's very specifically of that time again as well. Um, it was amazing now in hindsight. Like, what was I doing during the summer holidays when there was no internet? What did I do I know, for those six did weeks? I, there was did time. I just watch TV? We definitely Because I can't remember most games. of what I watched. <laughs> there was this time we stole a typewriter. So <laughs> oh, was, I see. There we go. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, I think like, there's any any other thoughts, really, that you want to bring up or anything? I don't think uh, we need to go I'm through just, it so much, but like I think we've done a pretty good job of getting The last it. thing I wanted to say as well, is you want another film sort of along these lines, but different in other ways, that is one of my favourite films ever, uh, is a documentary film called Etre Avoir, uh, To Be and To Have, which was it was a huge hit when it when it came out in France in the early two thousands and it is in it's the opposite of this insofar as it's set in a a farming rural part of France and uh, everyone lives so far apart that they all get driven to this one school and one teacher teaches the whole class from four to twelve and uh, you know there's about sixteen or seventeen kids in the whole school and you just follow it for this one year and again it shows so much of and like I said the, the sort of the documentary footage of the kids watching the Little Red Riding Hood puppet show it's sort of that sort of sense of and, and I actually remember like there's a fight in the in the 400 blows between two kids and there's <laughs> yes. a and and just child fights and how they don't know what they're doing really. <laughs> yes <laughs> and it's just great and uh, it's it, but it's the other end of the scale it's rural but there's also a scene where one of the boys is uh, doing trying to do his maths homework with his parents and the mom just 
belts him across the head at one point because he gets it wrong, but then all the parents can't figure it out either. So <laughs> it's a it's really, really beautiful little documentary film. It's more focused on the, the teacher than the kids, but the kids are all great as well. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the other thing that it reminded me of. And I think I saw that around the same time I saw 400 Blows for the first time as well. I think I rented that from that video store uh, too. Oh, thanks. So that'll be my that'll be my little extra. If you want to do a a, a double bill, a double screening, bill, yeah. which is something I talk about more and more now with with the twenty first films. Like every episode, I talk about potential double bills for films. And uh, so, if I was to say four hundred blows, I would say put it with. Well, Kess would be a good one to put it Kes with would as well. Be a good one, though, yeah. I think everyone would probably say Boyhood. Um, yeah. I have mixed feelings about Boyhood. I like, boyhood. Uh, but another one. I do like it, but I didn't think it deserved. All, I prefer the before midnight to boyhood. Yeah. As far as my big problem with boyhood, it came at the same time as Birdman, and I hated Birdman, so that I got. <laughs> so I was more supportive of boyhood, like probably maybe more than I think, like just because there was all that narrative around that. Uh, I love seeing it. I need to watch more Truffaut. Um Yeah, I need to watch Jules and Jim. I need. To, I, I, yeah, I keep yeah, getting yeah. told to watch it, and I keep not watching it. But I need to watch Jules and Jim because uh, that's the other thing I remembered. I did watch another Truffaut film, and I watched it at Vizi. It would have been like end of term or end of year. Right. Mr. Gert, Mr. Gertschel, our French teacher, oh, yeah, 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 put yeah. on, put on, and I've just looked it up, uh, a Truffaut film called The Wild Child. <laughs> and that was what we watched for a lesson, which was Truffaut actually playing a, a teacher who finds a kid who's like grown up in the, you know, I don't know, some sort of Tarzan kid or something and uh, tries to teach it to be a human. And he's teaching him how to say milk all the time with the the glass of milk so that might be another good double bill to put it against another one about raising a child and uh, yeah and it's another Truffaut film but that was that was just the one thing I remember yeah that's watching crazy. it with the I can't, yeah I am um, I think I missed out not having Mr. Mitchell uh, not having him as my French teacher <laughs> it was so weird we had a German as a French teacher in an English class yeah he, um, very strange he's my tutor I think oh okay uh, but I, didn't I always liked him, him. As a, as I don't know if teacher. he was a uh, he was a bit eccentric. He was very eccentric. <laughs> I, the best I remember someone... He had a recording that was able to... Pl- someone had a recording of him doing this little poem about the Leicester yes. City player Muzzy Is It. Yes. It went... <laughs> I think... Is it Muzzy, is it? Or is it, is he Muzzy? I'll never know. <laughs> could I be more selfish or could I eat more shellfish? I'll never know. <laughs> that's that's the... <laughs> shout out, shout out to both Mr. Gertrude and Muzzy Is It. <laughs> Oh well, um, yeah, Ollie. Any any thoughts either, like um, I, or I, ratings? What's, what's I your thought it was fantastic, to be honest, and it definitely I want to check out more of his films. I actually think the uh, like the actual meaning of the title is more fitting, which is to raise hell. Is a better. Yeah, title. we didn't bring that up. That the four hundred blows makes no sense in English, really, because it's yeah. an, it's an idiom, isn't it? Like, it's, yeah. Um, but yeah, to raise hell is basically the the the, the actual meaning of the title. So Which what is, is great, it? Great, I'm not going to pronounce it because I butcher it. But what is it? Uh, Le quatre cents coup. That's it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean the full hidden him? Do you mean no, that? no, the actual French title? Because okay. I, like, I have back- um, I have a stand-up bit that I've never been able to get to work on stage about how the French naming of numbers has always driven me crazy. Because I remember we used to have a French textbook and on, on the page numbers it would also tell you what the number was in like spell time French. Mm. And so the French it goes 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And then 70 is 60, 10. Yeah. Yes. And then yes. 80 is 420. <laughs> I was like, why have they brought multiplication into this? 
And they say that's why bingo never took off in Germany. Like the number is four twenty ten nine. Four twenty ten nine. Bingo. <laughs> I've got all of them. <laughs> and the next one is sixty. Uh, twelve. Ah, sixty twelve. Bingo. <laughs> I. This is bringing so much flashbacks of, of French lessons at school. <laughs> like I was never good at French. I really was never good at French. I was I was so oh, pathetic. I was good at German in my first year, and then we lost in Euro 96, and I resented <laughs> Germany for a year and refused to learn German afterwards. Took it to heart, did you? <laughs> I took it way too to heart. At least because it was a Villa player that failed us on the final penalty. <laughs> Oh well, and that I, hurt too much. <laughs> I'm um, I'm massively with you guys. I I loved this film. I I didn't yeah, know yeah. what to, I didn't really know what to expect. I, always going into these films, it's a bit kind of hard. And I think we've we've started using the term homework to describe films sometimes because <laughs> sometimes yeah. films can feel like a bit of work, and this didn't feel like that to me. I had an absolute delightful time watching it. Um, yeah, there's a re- there's a reason why it holds up so much. And there's a reason why it gets talked about so much. And it's a reason why New Wave became a thing, you know, from this. Like, they all make sense. It's not one of these, sometimes you can go back and watch something and go, I don't quite know why everyone talks about that. I don't quite know why that was so remarkable. But this, no, it's 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 wonderful. And it really yeah. is. It's kind of like like uh, when I saw when I saw Richard Pryor's stand up for the first time. It's like, oh well, this is where Eddie Izzard gets that from. This right. is where Chris Rock gets this from. This is where Eddie Murphy gets this from. Or like you listen to loads of modern bands, and then you might listen to the Beatles or the Beach Boys sure. or, or you know Elvis or Little Richard, and you're like, well, this is where they got all this from. And that's kind of you can see the birthing mm. point of it in this film. And like I said, because it's Truffaut, it actually. Doesn't feel like homework, whereas Godard often does yes. to me. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely can feel that. And um, so yeah, yes, thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lorcan. Like, um, thank you. You're gonna have to return the favors very soon, both of you. Will do. Uh, we've yeah. already got one agreed, haven't we? So uh, yeah, soon. We'll figure it out. Yeah, um, also, to I forgot it. to mention my other podcast that's not about movies, which is about do. wrestling. Wrestling called Let Me Tell You Something. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, that's one where we just, me and a, another guy, discuss either a particular aspect of pro wrestling or we're following this very popular, like you saw the Roger Ebert of pro wrestling, and when he gives a match five stars, that's a big deal in the nerdy wrestling community. And then a few years ago, he gave a match six stars and everything went crazy after that. <laughs> Meltzer, right? Meltzer. <laughs> yeah, Meltzer. Yeah. yeah, the Meltzer five-star project is what we call it. <laughs> so every time now he gives another match five stars. So over a year, we watched all the five-star matches. And then since then, we've just been updating it every time he's given another match five stars. Oh, cool. Um, and, and then the other... F- project we do within it is called match of the week where we take a match it's not a five-star match in Meltzer's eyes but it's something we want to talk about sure um yeah so that's that's how we structure it um if you if you're interested in wrestling then we i think it's worth a listen or even if you don't follow wrestling anymore i think some of the topics we discuss you might find interesting like one of the most recent episodes we did we talked about what is the wwe going to look like after vince mcmahon is gone oh god so we do a bit of a do a bit of succession from hbo chats (laughs) (laughs) Wrestling's really. Uh, we, we spoke about wrestling really briefly before, but like, um, I never take my foot out of the world. Like, yeah. no matter how much I don't watch, I always have like at least a toe in it. Um, I've always been, yeah. It's always been a, a constant in my life. Yeah. Other things that I've loved, like, like my first love was snooker. 
I've actually okay. watched a lot of snooker during lockdown, I have to say. <laughs> uh, it's been quite relaxing in a weird way. But wrestling and movies and music are stuff that I'll always have some sort of interest in. Not necessarily WWE, but sure. I like our, there's other stuff. Like the best stuff right now is coming from Japan. Yeah, really. I've heard that, yeah. And, and there's another promotion called AEW, which yeah. is doing some really, really cool stuff too. It's weird, like like me and Liam, we've, we, you know, we've grown up with each other since like, what, we were like four or five years old. Not to ages, but like, of all the things that we've got a very similar like taste haven't we in terms of film and music and yeah, stuff like that but resting is one thing i've just for some reason that's that's one yeah. thing that's never crossed over with us and i don't it's, it's just it, weird yeah. it's something you just have to you have to be willing to go into it like you have to suspend it to a certain amount. it's kind of like it's kind of like opera or musicals sometimes people just like i can't comprehend them suddenly breaking into song it's like it's like I've got a friend, like one of my friends as well from school, Simon Ward. He loves everything about wrestling except for the wrestling. Well, that's what I was going to say. I like the he loves the, the scenes, he loves the music. He loves the costumes. He loves me telling him stories about what's actually going on, but behind the scenes. But as soon as they start, yeah, as soon as they start locking up, he's just bored within seconds. He can't watch. It. I love watching documentaries about it. So, like, what's the one I yeah. watched a few weeks, the, a few months you ago? You watched Beyond the Map, I think. Beyond the Map, Beyond yeah, the yeah. that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. But I think that might be. I'm trying to remember if that's a 2000 film. It is. If it is it I might is, have yeah. to include that. I might have to include that in 21st films. Actually. You should do actually because it's available on Netflix yeah. as well. So for the first time, yeah, it's yeah. actually something that people are watching because it was always yeah. like this kind of thing that people pass around and like you know DVD copies around school and stuff like that. It was one of those old films. Oh god, yeah, because we were we were at the well, we we've been the age range that wrestling's always was was like the first wave of Hulk Hogan was when we were little kids mm. and then the second wave of like the Attitude Era and Stone Cold Steve Austin and DX was when we were all teenagers yeah yeah. so it was like because it hit us of that those two key moments of your development I think that's one of the reasons why our generation is so tied to it I think so uh, so much more even more so than those that like were around when Hulk Hogan first became a big star yeah because we got the double like, dip because that, that's yeah, what I got, got into it yeah. with the Hogan era with I said this to Ollie the other night um, it was like this kids around the where we lived like not yeah. people at school it was like the older kids where I lived they yeah. liked it so I used to go to their houses yeah. to watch it so like well, yeah it was my cousin I mean I, I literally wrote a whole book about it like I tried to do like a fever pitch in spandex about my mother's <laughs> re- of wrestling so if you want to go on Amazon and get yourself an e-book of confessions of a smart wrestling fan awesome. and that was what I did my first Edinburgh show about yeah. as well yeah. that was that that was what I did and then turned it into a book after that so if you fancy you know you've heard a lot of me probably too much this episode <laughs> but if you fancy reading a lot more of me then you can do that too <laughs> Yeah, please. Um, yeah, check yeah. out check out all of Lorcan's stuff. Check out his podcasts, and um, and hopefully, uh, when we're on the episode, we'll um, we'll drop it in here as well and let people know where they can find it as well. Because yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'd love to have and you back. I look forward to yeah, yeah, definitely. And I look forward to chatting to you guys. I think we've booked you in for Unbreakable. Unbreakable, yeah. If that's something that seems cool, that's that's going to be a big one for me because that was one that I really loved when I saw it in two thousand. And because M Night Shyamalan turns so bad, I haven't. <laughs> dared rewatch it for fear that it's not good so that's going to be a big one <laughs> when i finally dust it off well i'm using it as my <laughs> excuse to finally watch uh split and glass which i haven't seen yet so i'm gonna see i liked glass so i'm, gonna try I'm one of the glass three. defenders out there yeah i so... it's it, i it's a glass to piece but i also remember seeing lady in the water at the cinema and being like what on 
it earth has happened lady water is so <laughs> awful in ways that i every time i watch it i love it a little more it's it's well, it's, kind of like, <laughs> it's fascinating it's weirdly like cashback in that sense as well and so you're like this guy has talents <laughs> sure. but my god is he misplacing them <laughs> well, i don't know if some of my love for early uh Shyamalan films is because of the score and like James uh, Newton Howard's yeah. scores are fantastic in those films, and I don't know if that overshadows mm. it a bit. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of what I always remember about those films more so. Well, than we'll, the films we'll, themselves. we'll talk about Unbreakable. There's so many elements of Unbreakable that that works on, and one yeah. of them is even like the the Bruce Willis of it all. Like when Willis actually tries, yeah. it's yeah. a different. <laughs> yeah, <film>. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but, so the last time I think I saw Willis try was Looper. I yeah, think that's the last time Moonrise yeah. Kingdom as well. Was that the same year? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I don't know which one was first. I can't remember which one's the later, yeah, but he's interesting, man. Anyway, we'll wrap up there. Like, thank you so much, like, and, um, and we've got coming up next what will that be is it <laughs> oh. either hitchcock or i think we'll do night of the hunter okay night of the hunter. oh yeah. wow i've seen that that's a great film to cover yeah, yeah so yeah so we finished our main mini series and we always do a couple of more like just extras before we move on mm. and we, we decided to do night of the hunter and yeah, as yeah. i've been told a hundred times it's wonderful so like looking forward to that loads Literally the only film the the director made. He was a great actor, but that was the only film he directed. Oh, awesome! awesome. So, a hell of a hell of a ratio. Yeah, that is ratio. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us, Lorcan. And um, anyway, Thank thanks you. everyone for listening. Uh, please don't forget you can reach out to us on Twitter. We are at Adjust Your Track with a YR, not a your. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever you listen to us on. Be that YouTube, Stitcher. Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, any of those, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. And yeah, don't forget, if the picture's bad, always adjust your tracking. <laughs>